0: Folks, I have a, a very dynamic guest with me today, Brian Bellamy. Uh, Brian is the founder and CEO of the Refinery House, a digital agency and consultancy based out of Charlotte. I'll let Brian give an introduction here in a minute, uh, but I was introduced to him fairly recently and was absolutely blown away. Uh, Brian's young, although since I'm old AF, everyone seems young to me. So how old are you, Brian?
1: Yeah, thanks, John. First, uh, for having me on, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to a fun bit of time here. Um, I'm 27 now, actually. Yeah, the the wow. old age. I'm starting to get some gray hairs and the sideburns <laughs> and everything's
0: looking good. You're a baby. You're a baby, but, but with an impressive resume for sure. And, I and we'll certainly that. we'll certainly get into that. And. I want the folks to think back to what they were doing at 27 and, and feel really good about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, but first, you've brought a couple of whiskeys. Uh, what are we going to sample
2: here yeah.
1: first? Yeah, yeah. So this first one is uh, the CYPB Weller. It's also known as the White Bottle, um, kind of in the bourbon community. And Weller is a weeded bourbon. Um, but this is the CYPB. It's kind of the and uh, kind of the upper third of all of the buffalo trace um brands that they have that they carry so it's it's one of my um favorite kind of special bourbons uh and then we've got another one that we're going to try round two here in a minute called noah's mill and that's kind of a higher proof and my favorite daily sipper if you will daily
0: sipper every day yeah maybe not quite every day but (laughs) (laughs) yeah well cheers cheers yes tasting it thanks sir Wow, that's really good.
1: Should that's, be really smooth and just yeah. elegant. Not No real hard bite, just a nice long aftertaste there yeah, down yeah, the back. Yeah, it's complex
0: for sure. Mm-hmm. So um, part of what Refinery House does is build applications for companies, and, and you've gotten some really great traction on that side of the business. Uh, a lot of the questions that, that, that I've come prepared to ask will be geared towards details of running and scaling this side of the company, since that's where I've personally spent a lot of time. Sure. But but I do want to get into the other side of the business as well, and I especially want to talk about your history. So you've now started how many companies? Um, let's see, three, six, se- about seven companies now. S- seven companies. Yeah. Wow. Wow. 27. And uh, and how many of those have you sold? Uh, we have exited two of those businesses okay yep wow that's great um so brian can you go ahead and just introduce yourself and and the current company refinery house
1: sure yeah so um refinery house is a digital agency as you said um it was kind of born out of the idea that you know software and marketing live uh harmoniously together in our our modern in our current lives so why can't they live together in a business? Mm-hmm. And um, the the concept was being able to build something for someone and then also take it to market for them. And so uh, instead of having to hand the project off to someone else who doesn't know the intricacies or didn't build it, doesn't have all of the product knowledge, this similar team gets to then take it to market and kind of describe it uh, to the to the customer base.
0: So I, I take it that you you probably have some design resources on both sides of the house Are just the same people or do you segment them? We do. Um,
1: so there are some that are, are strictly siloed in either side of the business and then there are some that kind of, uh, cross back and forth.
2: Okay,
0: great. So did your parents encourage entrepreneurship when you were growing up or where did this come from? That's
1: a, that's a great question. Um, first mom and dad, if you're listening, I had the best parents ever of all time. <laughs> okay. um,
0: no, so after um, my wife's parents and my parents, yes, okay, third best. Sorry, mom and dad. <laughs>
1: um, so yeah, they they were really actually great parents. That they didn't encourage entrepreneurship specifically. They just encouraged me, mm-hmm. and it was kind of what I wanted to do. Um, I can think back. You know, if you ask that question to my mom, she'd tell you the stories of me sitting in my front yard when i was little selling all my toys to kids yeah. down the street and you know setting up my own saturday morning garage sale with my plastic cash register to okay. start making some money so oh that's great
0: yeah <laughs> well not <laughs> counting that business the, the 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 toy sale business um how far back do we have to go uh, before you started your first company like when, when did you start the first company so in other words how old were you yeah when you were a brian without a company
1: so um i think there's there's a couple ways to answer this question. My first legitimate, very legitimate business um, was started in college, but I could go back to about fifth grade when I started my lawn, <clears throat> excuse me, lawn mowing business, my yep. lawn company, and uh, we grew that. I mean that I employed um, several of my friends every single weekend. Uh, we we cut. Uh, at one point, we had about 31 yards that we cut. Wow! Uh, on a weekly
0: basis. That's awesome. Did you ever get into any commercial contracts, or was it all? Residential? We had
1: some um, at the kind of right before uh, I graduated high school. We had uh, some heavy equipment, so mm-hmm. we were doing lots of landscaping as well. Some great, you know, dirt moving, grading, um, really all kinds of different stuff.
0: Excellent. Well, that, that's a great experience for sure. Um, In addition to the support that you always got from your parents, what sort of influences did you have, uh, you know, leading up to that experience of building your first, what you called legitimate business in in college?
2: Yeah,
1: I I think for me, um, historically, I I really wanted to to be a doctor. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of my influences early on were um, people in the medical community. Mm -hmm. So various surgeons, I still have a couple of mentors, one's a brain surgeon, the other one um, is a as a uh, physician and internist actually. Um, but so I I always thought that I was going to go to medical school and graduate with an MD Mm -hmm. and be in a hospital for the rest of my life. But, um, it kind of struck me in college coincidentally. And so I, I took a slight left-hand turn and and never really looked back or haven't looked back yet. I I think I'd still like to do medical school as a hobby one day, but, Mm -hmm. um, is in terms of strictly influences, I didn't have too many entrepreneurial influences other than I knew that I wanted to work for myself, and I didn't know if that meant owning my own practice as a doctor or just having my own company, period. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Interesting that that, that was kind of inborn. Your parents didn't push it, and no, no, nobody that you saw was, was doing it.
1: No, they, they definitely uh, didn't try to point me in one direction or the other, just, just told me to, to do what I thought I loved. So now,
0: now you mentioned that you wanted to be a doctor. Does that mean what 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 did you study at school? Was it something to get you onto that doctor track? I was a,
1: a biochem major okay. at College of Charleston. Yep.
0: Okay. Great. And you mentioned that you've you started your first company during college. Was it at Charleston then?
1: It was at the College of Charleston. Um it was called Perkel and okay. um the idea was was born out of Wanting to know where all of the specials were on a daily basis, uh, in our college community, because obviously we were in college, we didn't have any money, so on a daily basis we were looking for the places to go buy the dollar beer or the ten cent chicken wing or you know anything <laughs> like that. So
0: I'd still like to have that <laughs>
1: exactly, exactly. Um, so we we built this uh, application. Actually, it started as an Excel spreadsheet, and then uh, that got a kind of a pain in the butt to distribute constantly. So okay. Um, I decided that this whole thing needed to live inside of a mobile application. So that, that's inevitably how it, how it became.
0: So that was about <coughs> seven or eight years ago then? Or? That was exactly seven years
1: ago. Okay. Yeah. Yep.
0: Interesting. Yeah. The, what, you were probably on iOS six where they started.
1: <laughs> that is a great question. I haven't thought about that in that quite a while. That might iOS
0: five even. Yeah. It. I think it was five it was either four or five and it was back when they were all the one form factor so that is correct it was only the
1: three and a half inch screen at that point we had
0: swift so you were doing it in objective c that's
1: exactly right (laughs) yes that was pre-swift pre-four inch iphone pre-retina display pre all of that with the original version yep
0: yep very interesting and and how did you did you know how to Program Objective-C, or did you teach yourself as a result of knowing that you wanted to build a mobile app?
1: No, so we just kind of cobbled it together, uh, the MVP, and um, once we had proof of concept, I went to uh, kind of raise some, some money there for it. So we took an initial seed investment um, with our very cobbled together MVP that we built. And, and was that just
0: somebody you could convince at the college to put some money in? or uh, No, so
1: um, it's actually a gentleman here in Charlotte okay. uh, invested uh, our original round, and that's kind of what kicked us off. Was so he
0: just an angel investor? He or? was, yeah. Okay. so not, in, not, not part of a fund? Nope. H- how long did you own Perkle?
1: Perkle in total was just right at about two years. Okay.
0: And and what made you decide to to exit it? Was there somebody else that wanted to run with it, or yeah,
1: there's a a company called Foursquare came in, and oh, yeah. and that was right as they were about to split into Foursquare and Swarm, I believe, is kind of the reason they were starting to hunt around for some some things that they could assess and. Uh, we essentially became part of their new data initiative for their, their local local data business.
0: Interesting. So so how old were you when you sold your company to Foursquare? 22. 22. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> when did you know you wanted to sell it during that two-year process?
1: I really didn't. Um, we, we were about to actually roll out to Atlanta, um, and we were kind of doing a geographical-based rollout, and we got to a point where you know we, we weren't even actually generating uh, we weren't cash flow positive positive, mm-hmm. um, and then we kind of got a knock on the door that said hey we, we'd like to just go ahead and and get what you have right now and so that's great We said yes
0: <laughs> how how long did you stick around instagram afterwards
1: what do you mean instagram
0: not Instagram, I'm sorry, Foursquare. Oh, no problem. Yeah. Foursquare.
1: Um, not very long at all. I think uh, in total we had an, a relationship with them for about nine months after the fact. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat>
0: That's great. So when you f- when they came knocking on the door did you hire any bankers or just lawyers or what did you No did luckily you do at the that point?
1: the gentleman that invested in us originally had had a team an M&A team he had okay sold and bought multiple businesses he was actually a, a CFO of a really large company up in Manhattan and okay. had a ton of experience in the financial sector so he was wow. able to to kind of guide us and, and do everything
0: So he gave you cash and actual strategic support He That's- did
1: yeah it was a, it was a good sweet first deal
0: that's excellent so he so he figured he structured the deal for you
1: pretty much yeah i I didn't i was kind of still naive and oblivious to a lot of the stuff that was happening and important and relevant to a deal like that and so he kind of led the way there
0: yep so you're 22 we sell it you spend nine months kind of still engaged with foursquare what what did you start next
1: um so out of that uh my original plan was to go back to medical school i was Prepared to jump right into MUSC at that point, and was going to ride off into the sunset as an MD. And um, I'll be right back. Keep going. sure, um, we were uh, getting so many questions from kind of friends and family, and and our close community and contacts that about technology in general, just because they knew that we had something to do with some sort of technology, and so. At that point, I had a couple of acquaintances still that were engineers, and we went ahead and I reached out to a couple of them. One gentleman in Austin, Texas, and we started a company called Vector Wish. Okay. And Vector Wish was a small web uh, development agency. Very small. It was, um, at its peak, there was four people. Okay. At Vector Wish, um, we grew up to. Not, not a terribly large company, but we had a ton of very small paying monthly retainer clients mm-hmm. for support as well as some cloud service management, things like that. And uh, a gentleman that was out in California but moving to the East Coast wanted to pick up a client roster okay. on the East Coast. So he bought some logos. So he, yep. yep, essentially that's
0: exactly what he did. That's great. And did this come out of the lessons you had learned at Perkle or what, what made you decide that you needed to start Vector Wish?
1: Um, Vector Wish. I just kind of saw an opportunity and mm-hmm. and wanted to to provide a service that that could help these people that were kind of asking these questions. It was just a lot of, well, I'm starting a business too. Can you build out our tech stack for us? And mm-hmm. at the time, I I currently couldn't, so I needed to have a vehicle to be able to service all of these people. So okay. that's kind of how Vector Wish was born.
0: And how. I I guess, how long were you involved before you sold it to the other gentleman? And how long did he want you to stick around to transition? things? I did
1: not have to stick around at all. on that one, actually, my partner, um, was the one that kind of carried, carried the baton after the fact. Um, I actually didn't own all of VectorWish outright, only had a, about a fourth of the company. Okay. And, uh, the, the rest of the partners kind of took care of the of the exit I knew already kind of what my next idea was for a business so I was I was headed in that direction already
0: and, and you were there working on it for how long I didn't catch that
1: in, in vector wish yeah um that one lasted in total about 18 months okay yeah
0: great. So what 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 was the next idea or the next company?
1: Well, in in building a lot of these websites, um, there was so much opportunity for actual application development at that point, and uh, the the people that I was involved with at Vectorwish they were weren't real um, game for starting to to get into the mobile application business, and this is right as the App Store was, I mean, really taking off, peaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, every. Things are going crazy in that world. So again, saw an opportunity and knew that I needed to be able to provide a service to, for people to to build them mobile applications. And so that's, that's when we started the Iridium Software Company. Which,
0: what's it called? The Iridium.
1: The Iridium okay. Software Company. Got it. Yep.
0: And what was different in your mind with this company from from Vector Wish? Because it sounds like there might be a little bit of overlap. In yeah, I would say this is
1: definitely more of an engineering firm, okay. where where Vector Wish was a very light kind of web agency. Gotcha.
0: Yep. Gotcha. Um, so, at this point, you've started three companies now. At, at this point in your history, what? What things surprised you on your second and third go around that maybe you didn't see the first time around?
1: Yeah, I think kind of on the, on the, after the first one, I realized what things mattered in terms of tying things to revenue Mm -hmm. to be able to grow and scale your business. Kind of for me in the first go around, I was easily distracted by things that really didn't matter, whether that be, you know, creating merch or Mm -hmm. just, buying stickers or putting your name on a billboard or you know just ridiculous things that you think matter a little bit but when you look back you're like yeah that that drove no value there was very low (laughs) roi on that one so the second and third time, it was it was a lot well, I'm easier. I'm glad you're
0: still buying merch. That's how I got this wonderful yes, shirt. Yes, that so, thanks. So, I'm glad some traditions didn't die. That's right.
1: Yeah. Well, that we're a little bit farther along in this business. <laughs> we can actually pay for the pay cash for the shirts, not on credit. Okay. So you know, um, but. Uh, yeah, so I, I think it was, it was a lot easier to cut through the noise in terms of people telling you, "Oh, do this, do that." It's like, no, yeah. I, I actually have a path to to being cash flow positive, and I'm going to stick to it
0: and cut everything else out. So, so was it mostly was were most of your clients um, at, at Iridium, Were they web based? Were they mobile? Were they a mixture of the two?
1: Mixture of the two, mostly mobile though. That's when we okay. started going pretty much really heavy mobile. Okay.
0: Excellent. And knowing now, knowing what you know now, when you look at Iridium. Um, and and Vector Wish, what what do you think you would do differently today? I mean, you mentioned focus more on revenue. That's obviously something that you seem to have learned. But are there any other things that you thinking back, you know, you would do differently with those two companies?
1: Um, I, I can't
0: I can't say I would do anything differently. I mm-hmm. I learned
1: from a lot of my mistakes that I made, so mm-hmm. I'm thankful that I I made them, and now. The refinery house is benefiting significantly from those mistakes and past experiences. So honestly, everything went kind of roughly according to plan and allowed me to mature in in not only running a company, but as a human being as well, in terms of
0: managing lots of different things. It's interesting because I had, before we started Level, um, my my co-founder and I had started another company together and... We never made more than maybe a thousand dollars of revenue with that mm-hmm. company, and we worked our asses off and but but the reality is we could have never started level without the lessons that we learned it, with that company Fair, very that's, wise that's part of why I tell folks, look if you've got an idea and you've got the means to do it and the passion and the energy and the skills, give it just a try. get get in the game it might and this may not be the company that that fulfills all your dreams for you. But being in the game and learning from, from the mistakes that you make and the successes that you have is, is so invaluable. Yeah,
1: that's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, I, I've learned and been molded by so much. So many of the, the things that have gone wrong have actually prevented a lot of other mistakes from being made. So sure. thankful for each and every one of them.
0: And so did you end up selling this company or
1: so iridium uh kind of became the software development side of the refinery house okay so when we rebranded <clears throat> and to to be a more inclusive brand mm-hmm. uh that is it just more. Right? okay
0: yep. got it got it so so it is is it the same entity
1: not Legend. anymore. Legend. We we have since thrown away the Iridium Software Company's entity itself. I mean, legitimate entity. And then moved all the assets. and Moved everything over house. to the refinery house. And now we are strictly the refinery house. Interesting.
0: Interesting. Talk to me, you know, about the decision to keep a business versus selling it it's you know, in, in your mind through through at this point you've done that a couple times after these these three companies yeah
1: so. and so um for me it's every situation is always unique and different so i don't think there's a perfect formula on whether to keep it or not to keep it i think um looking at it and deciding on you know is it preventing you from doing something else mm-hmm. is it providing um, funds to let you do other things mm-hmm. um is it an annuity, or are you spending a significant amount of time in it on a daily basis? I think those are all big factors in terms of what you want to do next. That will help you decide what to do then in terms of that scenario or situation. For me, um, I'm thankful the for the, how the refinery house is going. I think it's going to kind of be our legacy brand. Maybe not legacy business, but legacy brand. And um, I'm excited by the thought of keeping something a little longer than you know, 16, 18 <laughs> months. Can actually, yeah.
0: Very interesting. So, um so you started another business, I believe, called Unghost Me. We did,
1: yes. So, um Unghost Me is a hyper local local business. Um, and by that I mean at the refinery house, we're an agency, we're a retainer based agency, and so a lot of these smaller kind of mom and pop shop local businesses, um, don't have the means to have an agency partner to help them scale and grow. And so Me fills that need because it's a, it's a much lower touch, higher volume business, mm-hmm. but still unlocks a lot of the, the tools and resources that any business needs to grow really. And it, it starts with kind of two main things for us. One is business listing management. As you know, there's more than 40 local business listing platforms and mm-hmm. um, you can significantly increase your your digital value for your business if you have everything kind of uniform across all platforms uh, and make sure that it's current. So we've kind of created a little a little process to uh, take a business's information one time and then populate all 40 plus platforms with the exact same information so that it helps give them a nice little lift and boost um in the you know kind of google my business platform that's interesting
0: the for for the podcast we uh use a platform called anchor which is similar you you put all the info about your podcast into it you upload the audio and then it automatically updates all the different podcasts very platforms. neat so it
1: goes to itunes it goes to google spotify Got it goes it. to
0: spotify first because spotify bought them for i believe 250 million dollars oh, this year yes
1: <laughs> so, drop in the bucket <laughs> drop in the bucket exactly spotify also acquired uh speaking of podcasts i believe they bought gimlet as well yep, Did they, they did yeah. and
0: i think they announced it the same week if i'm not mistaken oh wow two okay. very different podcast plays but i think that yeah, that, Gimlet that c- clearly it's it's an area that they're investing in heavily.
1: Yeah, um do, did you ever listen to the Startup podcast by Gimlet?
0: I had heard it once or twice. I didn't realize it was by Gimlet though,
1: so. Yeah, so um the Startup podcast is the story of starting Gimlet. Okay. So Adam records, you know, conversations at his at the dinner table with his wife telling her about how you know their savings account is completely <laughs> drained, but he's you know <laughs> putting in more money, <laughs> yeah, kind of thing. So you get the it's a, it was a really neat uh, story to hear first person and get all the kind of behind the scenes stuff. And um, I was just so so happy for him to hear that that he eventually exited and, and did did really well. Yeah,
0: that, that's awesome. I think um,
1: Chris Saka was their original investor.
0: Okay, interesting. So, unghost me. Are, are you continuing to invest in this business? Is it growing? Is it kind of turnkey? Where, where would you say that that is at this point? Still
1: in the still semi-early stage. Um, I, it's kind of cliche, but I always say if you're not growing, you're dying. So um, to leave something on autopilot or cruise control for me is a little scary. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to keep fueling the fire sure. or put the fire out kind of thing. So Unghost Me right now is in a, in a stage of growth. Um, we're rolling out right now pretty much totally to Charlotte local businesses just so we have a really good feel on the local market here and what things are, are going to be very important because kind of the the part two of Unghost Me is uh, local paid search. And so we're able to go into companies like chiropractors, salons, massage places, all of these kind of cookie cutter businesses that will be able to scale these operations and processes to other cities that have the exact same kind of businesses.
0: Very interesting. And is 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 there a separate staff for UnghostMe, or do you use some of the staff from, from the Refinery House, or? We're
1: currently building a completely isolated sales staff for UnghostMe. Um, right now, a couple of the media managers work for the Refinery House and on Me part time.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's always sometimes challenging to figure out. I want to leverage some of the resources in one business, but then it also needs to be able to stand. That's exactly,
1: that's exactly right. Yes. That is uh, quite the song and dance there. I'm definitely going
0: to ask you about it at some point on how you've <laughs> balanced it. Well, yeah, we'll talk about that. Definitely. <laughs> um, so you started another business that was OSHA compliance related.
2: Yeah. What, so it's where called, does that fit into the timeline? It's
1: called Ocord. Um It came right before Unghost Me, me. Uh, and I was very lucky uh, this is kind of a web of of my close contacts. So Ocord is an OSHA compliance business for, excuse me, small medical, dental, and veterinarian offices. Mm-hmm. And um, traditionally, they managed all of their compliance through about an eight-inch uh, three-ring binder. With just tons of worksheets that people had to go and initial on a daily basis, or after they completed a task, or just a lot of overhead in managing this specific binder. So we took that and we put it online, using a web-based application, and uh, it's it's still in its infancy. the gentleman that approached me with the idea he was actually one of my best friends my attorney as well mm-hmm. and his mom had a business that's that does uh, all of the three ring binders so okay. they saw kind of the writing on the wall and said we want to be one of the first ones to go completely online so they came to me and said hey we'd love to make you a partner in this business can you build it and so that's how Robert and I got started in terms of uh, in terms of building Oakord
0: That's great. Had you done anything in OSHA compliance before or that was all Robert? That was, yeah,
1: I had never dipped a toe in OSHA compliance, but he is an OSHA and HIPAA compliance guru.
0: Okay. And is that in a state where it's growing or is it still developing the product? So,
1: um, OCORD, we're, we're kind of in an extended beta period right now. So, we have clients on that are using it that are paying us to use the software and everything. But we have not pushed the pedal all the way to the floor in terms of scale. Uh we believe that that it's gonna be probably one of our most successful businesses the as of now um and we're really looking forward to to pressing the go button in uh four days,
0: oh wow, yeah, while you're moving into a new office,
1: yes, and actually I'll be out of town in New York City uh <laughs> at vaynermedia
0: <laughs> interesting, I want to hear about that um. So did you raise any outside money for these two businesses?
1: For Unghost Me and um Ocor, they're both completely self funded by me.
0: Okay. And same thing with Refinery House? and Refinery Ridder?
1: House, no. I actually raised a small initial round for Refinery House. Okay, Yep. interesting. With Through an angel investor, uh, not a fund or anything like that. So yeah, we actually, when we decided that we were going to add the marketing agency side to the business, I knew that it would take me a few months to kind of get it going. So I went ahead and raised a round just to give us that initial seed layer of yeah. capital to, to be able to scale without That's being great.
0: constrained. That's great. so so o cord on un- on un- ghost me, and 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 refinery house you're Mm -hmm. you're you're effectively running all three of those at this point
1: at this point yes and
0: how do you how do you typically is it is it reactive where you're mostly just putting out whatever the current fire is or are you able to be proactive and plan out where you want to spend your time
1: um right now we're kind of in the transitional phase from going from reactive to hopefully proactive uh and all three businesses really um we've added enough clients in the refinery house to where we're <clears throat> have plenty of work to do mm-hmm. so it's keeping everyone busy there and then in ocord and then ghost me right now it they're they're pretty tame businesses right now. I'm waiting for something to catch on fire because sure. it's it's been a few weeks before <laughs> without great. a late night phone call. So I know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know one's coming at some point very soon. But um, we're we're transitioning to be more proactive. We're we're hiring some kind of um, manager level staff right now to help keep the fires extinguished.
0: Yep. Yeah, that's that's challenging, especially if if the three. Are <laughs> I'm imagining that when when things do catch on fire it's you know all three at once is probably the way that it usually (laughs) usually will happen uh Wow. That's, that, that's great. Are, are there any synergies between the companies at this point or?
1: So Unghost ghost me and the refinery house. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. if, if we're approached by or recommended to a business that we can't help through the refinery house, whether that be there, they have limited mm-hmm. resources or just not a good fit overall, then generally we can help them through unghost ghost me at least a little bit to get okay. them some initial lift, get them pointed in the right direction and be able to do a little bit of consulting through unghost ghost me. Yep. Um, and, and, so that that's been a neat thing to say. Oh well, this business we it's not a good fit, but over here we can we can help you. Okay. And so yeah, the people have been generally very receptive to that.
0: So what type of corporate entity did you create? I'm assuming it's three separate ones.
1: They are there. three separate businesses. And are they
0: all the same type? All LLC. Or? They're
1: all LLC. Um, we're gonna make the S election on the refinery house here pretty soon.
0: Okay. Interesting. So you're you're an attorney. An attorney's dream, <laughs> creating all these entities. Uh, you mentioned Robert is a good friend of yours. Has he been there from day one, or have you had to work with outside attorneys otherwise?
1: So since um, the the later Iridium days, Robert has been around, and so he I can call him one of my very best friends. And, and he's been really just a huge blessing in terms of helping us navigate day-to-day stuff, uh, high-level planning mm-hmm. um uh, Company creation, I mean, you name it. He's he's been just a a really key component of our overall growth.
0: That's great. It's very rare that you hear someone say they love their attorney. I know it's it's crazy.
1: (laughs) You know, he's he he probably will not love that I say this, but but he's one of the attorneys that dislikes a lot of other attorneys. So he's a good one. I can't say I blame him. (laughs) I love my attorneys, by the way. Yes, on the record, (laughs) you're all great. (laughs) You deserve all two hundred and seventy-five of your hourly dollars. (laughs)
0: So, so at this point, you've you had exited two. Co- so you've exited two companies, and you've got three that you're actively, actively running. How different was selling the second company? Obviously, you weren't selling to Foursquare. The second time. Yeah, it was time much around. quicker.
1: It was much smaller. There mm-hmm. was a lot less red tape to to that exit than there was the first one. I, I can say. Um, that they were, they were almost completely different in terms of no similarities other than company gone and and cash this way. So, uh, I'm looking forward to the third.
2: (laughs)
0: Are you giving us some foreshadowing here?
1: Not officially, not for any one of the three that we're currently working on. You know, I think just hopefully it's inevitable.
0: Sure. So, so iridium transforms into the refinery house. Um, do you think of the founding of Iridium then as the founding of the Refinery House, or was there a moment? Because for us with Level, I like to tell people that there were there were really two foundings. There was one where Chris and I started the company and we called it Ladder Partners, and then there was another founding when we um, took on a third partner and he helped us rebrand it to Level.
1: Gotcha. Makes and, sense.
0: And so for me, there were always, there's a group of founders, even though Chris and I were the original Matt came on, he was very much a founder because he helped us rebrand it and take it a different direction. Is it, do you think of what, like, how do you think about that same dynamic? Cause you actually had a different entity. We didn't, we just renamed it and completely shifted the branding and the focus of the company.
1: Yeah, that's, that's. Fantastic. No, that's, that's very wise. Um, For us, I think it's a little different. You can definitely trace our lineage back to Iridium just simply as an agency that provides a service for a customer. But really, when the refinery house name was born... I immediately knew that I wanted this agency to be better than any other agency that I've ever owned or seen or Mm -hmm. been a part of. Um, From day one, we've kind of really pushed uh, the white glove experience to Mm -hmm. our customers. And so I think kind of January 1 this year, which is when the refinery house officially launched, um, I think that that's our only founding, really.
0: That's day one. And when do you think... And where, and obviously it's it's not any one point, but were there some key learnings or things that happened that went into starting the refinery house that you that you look back on and say, yeah, that was a core part of my education. Where I knew this is what had to happen.
1: Absolutely, I think um, just being in, in the tech space and kind of digital space in general, I saw that um, entrepreneurism is it's, it's very hot right now. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of new businesses, a lot of new companies being started across the board. And I I thought kind of what better way to use our experience in the space than to be able to provide a really high quality top notch service to a lot of these other entrepreneurs out there. Mm -hmm. And so that that's kind of what I'm using to to drive our culture as well as kind of our overall strategy uh, forward through the refinery house.
0: So are more of your clients startups then, or Fortune 500, or what's the mix of clients for refining We have House? A, a
1: vast array of clients right now. And, um, we have uh, several Fortune 100 clients, mm-hmm. and we also have several very local business clients. So really... Yeah,
0: one that you've told me about, who we won't say their name, but is about as big as they come. I mean, it might yeah. be a Fortune 5 company.
1: <laughs> yeah, th- I think they're... Um, they're the largest in the world for what they do, is yep. my understanding. So, yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank I know- you.
0: I know what a bitch it is to get through the procurement process <laughs> at, at these type of organizations yeah. and just being able to get onto a procurement list, even though I believe you're doing it through a partner, but just being able to get through that process, that's, that's a measure that you're there. Cause that means you can repeat it and you can do it over and over and over again at other massive companies.
1: Yeah. We're, we're really excited that, that it went as smooth as it did and, and we're thankful for the opportunity to work with them of course. But, um, it was a very interesting process, nonetheless. <laughs> we'll just say that.
0: I've been involved in a couple of those interesting uh, processes. Yes, so, yes.
1: Yours is probably bigger than not, mine. No, anymore. I don't know
0: about that. But <laughs> what uh, types of technologies are you building things in these so, days?
1: All kinds, really. Right now, our, our kind of go-to stack is uh, a mix between Node and React. Mm-hmm. Um, we're using... Uh, what we'd like to think are, you know, the most cutting edge, the most well-supported and technologies that are also going to be here for a little while. They're not a fad technology or something like that, that our customers are not going to be able to get their application supported next year
0: or the year after. I'm I'm doing some work with with an Irish company and I'll be interviewing their CEO on this podcast in in the near future. And uh, they've got something like half the committers on Node.js. So I've been more exposed to that that community and it's interesting because it's a very it is very cutting edge technology and, and it's really been getting um a lot of press especially with with the rise of serverless and it's kind of a go-to platform for serverless but just seeing some of the luminaries from within the community and the types of problems that they're solving it's i think it's a very good balance of cutting edge but also supported
1: yeah it uh, kind of has that 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 aura that it, it's going to be here for a little while. It's not something that's going to be gone tomorrow. But yeah, what are your thoughts on serverless technology? I'd, I'd love to get the kind of cliff notes from the man himself.
0: Well, so I, I think like anything, they can it, it can be a little bit overhyped. Um, and, and I think that you can still do microservices well without serverless technology. But I do think, and I think it introduces challenges. Now, I think if you can overcome those challenges it is it is a game changing approach to building and deploying and managing applications mm-hmm. but i think it opens up a whole host of governance questions i think that when uh, the simp- the simplicity of deploying applications and just it's all it is is really an endpoint and an invocation and how do you charge that correctly i don't know that companies are necessarily equipped to understand chargebacks on shared services in in a serverless world. I think once you get through kind of the operational challenges of serverless, though, is is where you really do start to start to drive value. I think if you take a a step back and look at microservices, very, very hyped. I think overhyped. I think that people are driving tremendous value with microservices. But a lot of the companies that were coming to level while I was still there in the day to day we're not equipped as an organization to do microservices. They just aren't organizing cross-functional teams. Um, Everything is geared towards a very waterfall approach to development. The teams are highly siloed Mm -hmm. and, and it's just very difficult. And I think the same thing tends to apply with, with serverless. But if I'm building my own technology stack and I'm the CTO or influencing the decisions, I'm absolutely AWS, Lambda, Uh, serverless you know it's but but again i don't know that it's necessarily right very interesting for everybody so
1: conceptually you really love it Mm -hmm. but you think that there's or know that there is a significant more amount of management overhead involved or kind of understanding involved in 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 updating the technology or or continuing to use it
0: and, and the metadata repositories to know how do i call this service how do i invoke this operation i still think that there are challenges for some some organizations to adopt that type of programming mindset, but those that can, I think can drive some real, some real innovation. That's yeah. neat. And yeah. again, I do think node is a, is a great example of, 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 of a technology that, that enables that. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So we're using node um, react. Uh, we're using swift swift native on iOS. Um, we, we prefer kind of vanilla native and mm-hmm. just at our shop uh, versus kind of the react native kind of cross platform, mm-hmm. you know, and we've just found that, that it works so much better. So our kind of standard protocol is build the application in one or the other, iOS or Android, refine it, get it right, and then build the other operating systems counterpart.
0: That, that was largely the conclusion that, that we came to. I do think there are some platforms that are cross that are cross-platform development. Um, for those listening who don't know, developing an iOS application is wildly different from developing an Android application. Uh, one's written in Java and one's written in, in C and so there's a decision made pretty early on do I go native or vendors have built these tools that are now enable you to build an application once and then it handles the, the details under the hood in fact a friend of mine started a company that created a product called titanium studio that I would argue was the first really good example of of, of doing uh, just that and th- I tend I think you have to look at the type of application that you're building. If it's a very white glove service and it's customer facing, I think you're going to have to go native. And and the reason that you prefer to go that you would prefer to go with the build once and then deploy it multiple places is you're managing in theory one code base and. And, and you're not you don't have to hire two completely different coding skill sets which some people can do both very well but there are a lot who who, who can't but the advantage to doing the, the the challenge with doing a multi-platform approach is that you inherently build to the lowest common denominator so if one platform has a feature before the other platform that may be GPS related or location services related, or it may be some sort of integration into a payment system, or there's all sorts of things going on in these arms races. You, you as the developer of react native or whatever the tool is that's cross platform, you can only, you have to go to the lowest common denominator, which means that you end up leaving features off. And so as foldable phones come out, you're going to have to go native to take advantage of a foldable phone. Right. Um, and but, but the advantage, I think, where we would advise clients on the cross-platform is when you think about enterprise applications that are being rolled out, and especially when you're doing almost a lift and shift off of a green screen technology or a Windows MFC application mm-hmm. or a VB6 application. And you say I need to just get this on to a tablet as quickly as I can, then I, and and these are enterprise users who don't care what it looks like, they don't right. care what it feels like. But it's all utility at yeah. that point. But I don't think you're ever going to see the next Instagram or Uber <laughs> built Dude, cross-platform <laughs> on cross-platform. I would so, concur with yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Although React Native is 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 fantastic technology, I have heard the argument made that the problem with these cross platforms is also that. Um, when updates are made to the underlying operating system, they may be slower to respond. And I don't know how true that is. I haven't seen any data on that. My reaction is the same thing happens in native though. A new SDK gets released. Comes out, you got to update it. You got to gotta update it too. Exactly. So you're not necessi- You you might control your own destiny a little bit, but I've got to imagine these cross platform development paradigms have access to the same, you know, uh, they they have the same early access to the new APIs. And so they should be rolling it out and in, in giving you enough time to make whatever changes you need to make to your code base. Right. But,
1: that you know, makes sense. No, yeah. that's well thought out there. Very,
0: very interesting. Um, are there any other key technologies for you? I take it a lot of AWS and Azure. A lot
1: of AWS, no yeah. Azure at no all. No Azure. Um, interesting. Yeah. I'm starting to dip my toes into Google Cloud a little mm-hmm. bit just to check it out. I understand that it's a, a good bit cheaper than mm-hmm. AWS, but I'm, I'm, waiting to uh, to look at the uh, entire kind of feature set and and do some research myself before I make the decision that we're going to do anything on Google Cloud. Okay. But yeah, right now it's... So if your
0: clients ask you, we, we need to be on Azure, what what is the answer? Is The answer depends on how big you are to how much. That is, yes, that is
1: exactly the answer right now because our answer would be, well, we currently don't have mm-hmm. uh, anything on Azure, so mm-hmm. you would be the first, and you would essentially have to, to pay for our education, sort of, on okay. it. Yeah, I'm just... I drink the You're AWS. a lot more honest than I am as, <laughs> as, as
0: a consultant. i
2: have <laughs> done know. thousands of Azure deployments. <laughs>
1: all over the world, everywhere, <laughs> in all the availability zones. <laughs> um, no, I, I think for us, it, it's just uh, I, I would really want to understand why they need to stick to Azure um, before I would endorse that decision. And it's not because Azure is a bad platform or a bad service. It's it's just we know it's AWS so well at this point yeah. that, that it's hard for us to think about committing to another cloud service
0: and are most of your clients going to cloud native with aws or are they looking to be cloud agnostic and deployed on aws
1: so far it, it really hasn't been uh, a huge issue on which service they use or, or where they land so um we just kind of say aws is the best and and that's what we're we're going to build it on so okay that's great Now Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, AWS <laughs> is the best no matter what they all say.
0: <laughs> so at, at the current scale that you've got refinery house or, or or kind of where you are right now, what's what's the biggest challenge? What's keeping you up at night? What's what what do you feel like I've got to get this right?
1: Um we focus so much on our delivery that you know, if, if something goes wrong or if something isn't perfect in terms of uh, an interaction with a client for us, whether I'm CC'd on an email and I would have done something a little bit differently than someone on my team did, that's kind of the stuff that keeps me up at night. And I mm-hmm. think that can all be boiled back down to company culture. Mm-hmm. And so, um, like I said, I'm 27 and I, I don't have a ton of experience in the, just the general company culture realm. I've always worked for myself or... Um, you know, ha- haven't been involved in a large company that has really great culture to be saturated in and learn from that. So, I, I would say right now my biggest challenge is, is consistent company culture and, and what that looks like. Um, a lot of the people that work with me are my age or older. Mm-hmm. And so, making sure that I'm balancing leadership and authority with also kind of understanding that they're reporting to someone who's significantly younger than they are. So, that is kind of my biggest challenge, and and one of the things that I'm I'm hoping to solve with uh, this week's trip to VaynerMedia.
0: Excellent. Well, I um I, I saw I've done some work with a group out of the U.K. that I really admire, and they've been in business for a while and been very successful at growing multiple digital businesses. They own a, a, a cricket team, <laughs> um, oh, wow. and so very successful group and. Uh, they have a presentation that I saw in New York probably four or five months ago where they talk about company culture. And they had a lot of really good material in there, but there were a couple of things that stuck out to me. One of the things they said, which is almost cliche, but it bears repeating, is that company culture is really, when you boil it down, it's the way people behave when there isn't a policy on something. Mm. And if you think about it, your policies can't be so prescriptive to cover everything. So if you give people a set of guiding principles and this is how they behave and they're going to have it, whether it's good or bad, it's mm-hmm. going to exist. It's just, if it's well thought out and it's, and the right fit, then it's they're, very, are going to behave the right way. And they also said, which I had not heard in the, anywhere else yet. I still haven't yet is that, um, co- corporate culture is the, in the long run is the only sustainable advantage for any company in any industry period. Um,
1: I like that a lot, which, and it's, when you say it, it's blatantly obvious to me, but I, I concur very much. So that, it reminds me a little bit of something that my dad taught me when I was a lot younger was, he said, you know, I was kind of in the learning manners age Mm -hmm. and going to Cotillion in sixth grade and all of that stuff. And he was, you know, he kind of told me that, that, uh, yeah, you can have great manners in in a public and social setting, but Mm -hmm. you're kind of Actual manner rubric is how you perform when you're alone. If yeah. there's no one sitting across me at the table, do you still chew with your mouth closed? Do you, it, you know, it, still act proper and, and all of that? And so the same, same exact concept. That's a that's a very cool, neat concept. That's yeah. something that stuck with me for a long time. So hopefully, I'll be able to tie it in and sure. sow those seeds in the refinery house.
0: Well, well, we we built up what I think is a pretty strong and enduring culture at Level, and also before that at at Amentra. And, um, you know, I don't think that there's any any one guideline that, that I think applies to every company. But I do think that being able to think about what type of company you want to be. And my guess is, given the industry that you're in, and certainly for a mentor and for a level, it was this way. You want a company that's dynamic and can stay on top of the technology and on top of the way that companies are driving value through building these digital products and then marketing and selling them, which is chaotic as fuck. Um, Look at the commit logs on, on node. Look at how quickly everything changes in the react world. Look at how quickly everything around you changes. And that's difficult for people, even for 25 year olds, 22 year olds coming out of college, the constant change, it's, it's difficult. I don't care how, how ADD you are and how, quickly you're able to learn new technology, it can be challenging. And when you think about the culture, to me, you need to start with, okay, we need to embrace this rapid change. And and again, I don't think this applies to every, this doesn't apply to a bank the way that it does to a tech company. Sure. Um, but then if I change everything, then how can I have a, a culture? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's constantly changing. And then how can I give guidelines around that? And so what I saw work very well in both companies was really sitting down and defining as a team what are the things that can't change and if you start from that and then you say now these are our core values and these are never going to change no everything what. else can change and i'm comfortable. <laughs> it's kind of your foundation yeah. that you yeah. build
1: everything else on top of i Absolutely. really like that
0: that's great what what would you
1: say are kind of like if you're going to start a new business tomorrow what are your top three core principles that you would try and instill in that business
0: so for me the number one is intellectual curiosity. I just want to be around humans in my personal life and in corporate life that are intellectually curious. And I don't care what they're intellectually curious about. When I would interview people at level, tell me what you're into. You know, what do you really like? And and if they could go deep on something, I don't care what it was, then I think that that's the kind of mindset that is going to do well around me because the companies I build... I want to learn. I want to keep changing things. I mm-hmm. want to keep pushing the envelope. And if you aren't curious about what things are, you're not going to be able to, to do that.
1: In um, your interviews, did you have any, this is a little off topic here, but in your interviews, did you have any like your own go-to interview questions that you would kind of throw out there to see if so they would it, take it, the...
0: Yeah, it would depend on on the level of the interview. So if I was doing a tech interview, my go-to questions, I had all sorts of technical questions about Java, sure, .NET, sure. C Sharp. And I was always, if somebody was an asshole, I would always throw them off with explain the volatile keyword in Java <laughs> and then compare and contrast that with volatile in C++. Oh, my uh, God. But I only broke that out for a couple assholes. I'm glad so. you're not interviewing me because I have no idea what. Uh, um, yeah. But I don't put a lot of stock in technical interviews. I think most people fuck that process up and yeah. say no to good candidates. What about kind of conceptual interview but questions? Conceptual interviews, um, my favorite question of all time, uh, was and, and and I had two different frameworks I would ask it within, but would be to walk somebody through a large transformation project and get them into the details of what we're doing and then have the client throw a curveball. So in one case, we're standing up a turnkey VoIP product for a company that had never sold in the retail VoIP industry before they contract with us to come in. And this is back in the Inventor days. They want to have this very complex integration done to build this product they didn't they didn't understand the complexity of the integration they bought an integration platform the vendor said you guys are crazy like this you need to talk to a mentra they'll figure it out and so sure. i was the project lead on this project and we figured out and it was painful it was the most painful project i've ever been on and i've been on some bad ones this one was wildly painful and we get probably seven or eight months into the project and we finally got the product working and 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 at this point we realized there's inventory that needs to be shipped, and we had always been told that we were going to use UPS. So we built an integration into UPS's logistics as a service mm-hmm. platform. Sure. And and then and then we we finally got an interview with someone from the CFO's office, and 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 we say, okay, where do we store this this inventory data? And they're like, well, we've never sold inventory before. Oh wow. <laughs> well, okay. so so, okay. I, so, I like, so this so you can see I walk the. Uh, So this, I like this because I'm going through a real real world problem with the person that I'm interviewing, making sure that they follow, making sure that they ask questions because I'm going to explain things that don't have enough info. And to be a good consultant, you need to be able to ask the right questions. Right. But this is where I really, really like to see how they behave, because I say, "What would you? What do you do now? What do you, If you're in my shoes as the project lead, and you find out there is no inventory system, and there is no right answer, I just right. want to hear them think through how the, what their questions thought do they process. ask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, but back to your original question. So, I think intellectual curiosity is the first one, and I think in that example the, an intellectually curious person is going to ask me questions they're going to say I'm going to ask questions of the person that I'm talking to so i think right. that, i think that those are important i think excellence as a habit is very important love that um for people i think that just if if you're going to do anything that you deliver to somebody else it needs it needs to be as good as you can make it and right. people who take that kind of professional pride i think tend tend to do um, tend to do very well and then I, and and the, you're splitting hairs between how important each of these is, um, but it's also incredibly important to me to have an open mind. I hate nothing more than sitting down with a developer who's 30 IQ points higher than I am and has done way more than I have, but who can't be open-minded and look at a problem and say, hey, maybe I need to rethink the way I'm thinking about this. Right. I don't yeah. care. You can't. You can't know everything. You can't be smarter than everybody on everything, and you can't operate unless you're willing to 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 learn from others so those are probably the three most important but there's others that like them a lot up there as well
1: no i'm just thankful that you're not like the elon musk interviewer you know one of (laughs) his favorite questions is if you are standing at a singular point on the planet and you walk a mile south a mile west and a mile north you're right back where you're standing where are you
0: I've heard this one and I don't remember the answer anymore. But it's either the be... north or the south pole. Got it. But yeah.
1: <laughs> um yeah, you know, he does all those kinds of stuff. So that, that's great to hear kind of your general philosophy on on corporate culture.
0: Sure. Yeah, I I my first company out of undergrad, they asked those kind of questions and it was nerve wracking. Luckily I got enough of them right that's to, good. to pass through. But it was it was An interesting um, interview process for sure. But I don't, generally, and I told my people this all the time, you're going to fuck up an interview. Right. And especially, we operated a business in Australia, one in Singapore and one in the UK as well. And in those cases, it's pretty hard to fire people. (laughs) Um, Operating a business in North Carolina, I'd rather err on the side of caution as long as someone has done some interesting things. And if they aren't good, then you you, you let let them them go. I think that the biggest challenge we have with technology folks is that they, they get hung up on things that don't really matter at mm-hmm. times. And you end up screening out bad candidates more often than you do letting in or screening out good candidates than more letting, often than bad. You letting yeah, in
1: bad. Yeah. I read an article actually that kind of analyzed our, the United States government's mm-hmm. um, hiring processes for engineers, software engineers. Mm-hmm. And they said that they will never be, um, on par with the russians or um the chinese Mm -hmm. because we have a no zero drug policy and there are so many brilliant engineers Mm -hmm. and stuff that simply just smoke pot or or whatever and and that's an absolute no-go at the united states federal government so um, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot there, yeah, uh, because because we can't move past that that one simple thing.
0: We certainly have a lot of of unforced errors for sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> that that definitely seems like one of them. I think that um, the the other thing is when you look at a place like Singapore, like they, I, and I don't recall the exact numbers, yeah, but how they, they, is they' running
1: they, a business in Singapore. Well, I,
0: we we had a guy who was awesome in in Melbourne who had worked with us before Fantastic. running that business. And then he, we gave him a pile of cash to go build the team that he needed to build. Then he started the business in Singapore because he was doing a lot of business in Singapore and it just became a lot more cost-effective. But their government is fascinating. Very, very well-run city. It's a city-state. It's much easier to run a city than it is to run a country, obviously. Yep. But they take the role of public servant very seriously mm-hmm. and they pay them commensurate with what they would make in... So so what a so, concept! Yeah, so so if you want to get the best voice engineer to come work for the U.S. government, but you're gonna lump him into G2 or G3 or whatever their scale is, and then he goes and talks to Google and is offered more than a starting pitcher for the Cubs would make exactly. You're, you're gonna have trouble finding <laughs> the, the best talent, and, and Exactly from what I right. understand, Singapore uh realizes this and 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 as a result people take pride in going and getting government jobs and i think when someone takes pride in what they're doing they do better work i don't care what it is you could be a sweeper at mcdonald's and if you take pride in it you're gonna be be the best sweeper yeah 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 exactly exactly
1: right so so what you're saying is the singaporean government has good
0: corporate culture again from what i've heard that's great yeah i love hearing
1: that i know that they. Uh, that littering is still illegal over there. And so uh, there's one Singapore night F1 race, and they have to get special permission from the the governor to um, throw the tearaways of their visors on the track. Oh, wow. So otherwise, you know, it was, it was a huge, huge big deal. So we switched over to Noah's Mill. Uh, what do you think? You've had a couple of sips of it there. Kind of compare contrast to the CYPB white bottle.
0: It's it's also very good. Um, it's not it's not as good. It's clearly a different class of class of bourbon, but I like this one as well. I can yeah. see this being a daily driver for sure.
1: Yeah, this is it's got a nice bite to it. Mm-hmm.
0: How do you? Are you much into rye whiskeys at all? Or? I
1: am. Yeah. Next okay. time, next podcast, we'll uh, we'll, we'll do rye, rye only. Okay, yeah. Cool. I actually just picked up some a couple two two new rye bottles last week that that I think are going to be pretty fantastic. Awesome. So, um, yeah. I'm excited.
0: Yeah, I've got a very good friend, Tim Cheadle, who's really into bourbon, and I keep meaning to ask him what his thoughts are on rye. He's got a, a bourbon collection that's Fantastic. absurd, and uh, he, sure. he goes out with a group of friends and buys a barrel, I think, every year. Oh, wow. With with the group. Sure, so, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that into the in, into it, but I do appreciate a good whiskey, and this certainly is yeah. a, is, we, is we a good one. we might have to go do the bourbon trail together at some point. We may, though. We may have to do yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we've talked about it a little bit. There's two very different parts of the refinery house. Um, why do you have them both under the same roof? I mean, clearly you don't mind starting multiple companies, so you could have had them as two, two companies, but why did you?
1: Yeah, I think, um, we're hoping that the benefits of one business kind of puts out the fires that Mm -hmm. the other business causes, meaning, software development is great margins are good Mm -hmm. if you're good at it and you can manage the project well Um, but one of the things is that most software development projects have is a beginning and an end and it's not kind of recurring and it's not never ending right Mm -hmm. so My thought was marrying the two businesses together would allow for the marketing side's recurring retainered revenue Mm -hmm. to support the day-to-day resource need that the entire business has and then allow the kind of software development projects to layer on top of that, really, and kind of that be our in-the-black kind of profit there. Um, So that was the original thought behind combining them and making them two very close businesses so, so
0: you're saying the ongoing care and feeding of a product of a, a product doesn't die i mean it 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 can be killed but it but generally speaking it doesn't end the way a project does it, it sure keeps,
1: and and it, for us um yeah that's exactly right and, and but but and on the software side it's been tough for us to break into the kind of ongoing support mm-hmm. as much as it has to land the one-off projects. Mm-hmm. And so um, in, instead of focusing my time on building out the support side of our business, um, I just went ahead and added the marketing uh, agency because I, I think there's a significant amount of potential there as well. And I wanted just to simplify my life and have one brand <laughs> that I could refer to constantly gotcha. versus multiple <laughs>
0: It's interesting because we we started out in app dev and then one of our very early employees said he got really frustrated because we would get work that was done by a design agency mm-hmm. and for our client and then we'd go to build it and it was, wasn't designed to be built. It was designed to look good as right. a design. And so he wanted to create a design agency inside of an app dev shop. Right. And one of the things he talked a lot about that I think hits on what you're talking about is he wanted to shift the mindset away from projects to products. Cause, and and he liked to talk about how you you design a product, you build it, you measure it, and then you refine it, and then you redesign it, and then and it's an ongoing thing. Mm-hmm. And having the agency and going into more of the marketing and 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 the, and the advertising, you know, really the marketing part. That is more and more intertwined with the app dev because you have to be able to measure, you have to have the metrics, and they need to be built into the product itself. And so it creates a nice virtuous cycle over time.
1: Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, um, that's literally why we named it the refinery house, because Mm -hmm. it's kind of this ongoing cycle of build a product, send it over to the marketing side, put it out in the marketplace. Mm -hmm get feedback on it, be able to refine it on the software side and then run it back through the marketing side, That's just great. kind of rinse and repeat that cycle over and over and over again until now, you end up you with that great s- product. Do you do
0: much cross-selling between the two businesses? I do, though? Okay. Yeah. And do you lead with one more often than the other or do you prefer to lead with one?
1: Um, Not necessarily one over the other. I think um, a lot of our businesses come through the software side and then we inevitably market their product. but. I've been so focused on scaling the marketing side over the past few months that uh, most of our new business is coming in through there and then being supported by the software side.
0: So for the folks that c- the clients that come in on the marketing side versus the clients that tend to come in on the development side. Mm-hmm. Are, are are they very different or is it just random? Pretty different.
1: Okay. Um, we have a, a longer, healthier software development agency than we do digital marketing agencies. Mm-hmm. So our clients that come in through the software side are, are generally significantly larger than okay. our, our marketing only clients. And so that's one thing that I'm working on trying to, to balance or, or to get our marketing clients to be our equivalent to our software clients.
2: Okay.
0: And, and you, you, talked a little bit about this before but are the employees are your employees mostly siloed between one side and the other are you starting to see more crossover as it evolves there's or? a
1: there's a lot of sharing going on right now like a, a lot of our design team does um they're they're not siloed they mm-hmm. they go back and forth between UI UX and then just general graphic mm-hmm. and stuff like that um we we tend to stay away from simple print and stuff like that kind mm-hmm. of design because that's not necessarily product based but um, Everyone else, in terms of our engineers, they're very siloed. Uh, mm-hmm. They they don't overlap at all. Um, I overlap. Some of our other C-suite mm-hmm. people overlap, but um, anyone kind of below that doesn't.
0: Interesting. Um, So do you have a shared bench between the two, or are you managing two different benches when you um, think about the billable resources?
1: We don't have a bench on the marketing side. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone over there is completely in-house, and we're actually at a – at a great run rate right now in terms of resources that we have and resources that we need. Um, it's, it's, it's been really strange. I feel like we haven't strayed too far in one direction or the other in terms of waste or, you know, drought. So, uh, so far everything's going well over there right now on the software side, we have a pretty, pretty large bench, um, of engineers and, Mm -hmm. uh, we've enjoyed that. Because we can go into pretty much any meeting and say yes, we can we can build this and we can start really soon. Yeah, and and that's been able to win us more business than a lot of other things have.
0: It's it's interesting when when we were with the Mentra, we were managing largely one bench. You you can train a .NET developer to do Java and vice versa because those were the two technologies that we were developing. Mm-hmm. And at, at level, one of the things I struggled with early on, when when we were first just doing pure app dev, you're you're managing one bench. But then we added DevOps, which is a fairly distinct skill set. We generally are, and at least when I was there, we were selling a lot more on the dev side of the DevOps, but you're still talking about uh, more of an infrastructure skill set or network configuration sure. or, 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 or the operations side of the house. Um, but that wasn't that was fairly manageable then we started doing payment strategy work which mm-hmm. is completely different and those those guys will never write a line of java code in their life they'll never set up a a github repository right. um and but the people on you know the developers are never going to go learn the difference between all of the different payment networks or right. who all the players are in the space or how to put a proper PowerPoint presentation together because it is an art I, I learned from some of the best in the business at level, um, completely d- distinct skill set. Then you get into design, and a designer. All of our designers could code, but it was at a minimum they could do HTML code and some sure. JavaScript, just but, a little light front end work. But, but not necessarily someone that you're going to put on configuring JMS queues for a payment processing engine for a large, yeah, you know, it's a completely uh, different DNA. Super regional bank. Um, and even within development, native mobile developers tend tend to focus on that and not go write node j s code or sure. go write some of the others. so yeah. we were really managing a lot of different benches and there definitely was a point where um number one, we had a lot of pain tolerance in the company we just we were all comfortable with selling things that we might not know sure we could figure it out but we'll figure it out right we, we were very confident that we could that we kind could of ties deliver. back
1: to your intellectual curiosity yeah. Uh, yeah. in corporate culture That's exactly
0: great. and our head of sales used to always say never confuse sales with delivery <laughs> <laughs> like, sell it and figure out how to deliver it yeah. later and, like that and now obviously you can get into some reputational ruin if you go too far with it but sure. we, we were able to, to strike a good a good balance there um but we we even though we had the pain tolerance to do that and 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 power through it definitely got easier at a certain point i and i don't i can't look back and say it was 120 people or 160 or or what but it part of the problem is the capabilities were constantly evolving too just as we would grow we would also say okay now we're going to start a media telecom or media and publishing practice and now you've added another bench new business line yeah yeah, that you need to stack resource up for yeah 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 exactly and um but do you think you'll hit, will you hit a point, do you think, where, number one, you need to carry a bench on the digital agency side um, and, and the marketing side? And if you do, do you think there's a point where you've hit the right size, where you've balanced the needs of having the bench capacity with running lean and being profitable?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um I think overall <clears throat> I'm kind of curious just to see how this goes and how inevitably it scales and what our needs look like. Mm-hmm. I don't know what our needs are going to look like. And so I don't know if we'll need a bench because mm-hmm. we're still, we're in such infancy on that side of the business that yes, we are, we've actually just last week crossed cash flow positive on that side of the business, okay. which was a great milestone for us. But in terms of what the future holds and, I just don't know to be, to be really honest. I think I'm kind of like the take it day by day and just be ready to adapt or, or just be agile enough to, to handle anything that comes across the desk that
0: I call it, keeping your head on your shoulder. I think back to (laughs) to high school football where like wide stance down, you know, prone and ready and just keep your head looking around. Yep. Just on a
1: swivel. That's (laughs) exactly right. That's how I pretty much go into
0: my office every day. (laughs) So. One thing that's fascinating to me about your business, um, and I don't know, the, no, don't know the best way to describe this. So if it doesn't make sense right away, we'll keep poking at it sure. until we figure out what I'm trying to say. Um, I think you probably get a ton of mileage eating your own dog food with yeah. the marketing service. Um, you know, and uh, it, it's also a revenue generator. And I compare it to AWS for Amazon. Amazon makes money off of AWS, but they clearly Get a lot of advantage it. in their other businesses, and I think that that is, when when you look at businesses throughout time, there's always a tend or seems like there's a, a very often a strong tendency to vertically integrate. So you would see auto manufacturers go buy um, farms for the cows for their leather, and then they'd go buy a manufacturer of a of a you know window machine or. You're just a vertically integrated supply chain, and what in ev- and and the rationale there is often i want to say cut costs and I can control it better and then the challenge seems and again, I've never worked at an automotive company, but from just the literature I've read in other industries as well, it seems like what ends up happening is these you your parts of your supply chain become complacent because they on they they have a captive audience in g m <laughs> so although g m has more control over Delphi. And their radios Delphi isn't selling against Alpine or Clarion or Pioneer right. or anybody who's driving innovation selling to everybody with Amazon in their case AWS they're they're selling to other customers as well and so you get a vertically integrated supply chain that's forged in the marketplace Exactly, um, right it's a great way of putting that and and so it, it was that is does that factor in am I right about that do, do you see some advantages from that and are there other areas of the other areas of things that you see that you could do the same thing where you create because Amazon hasn't just done it in AWS they've done fulfillment they've done storefront they've done logistics now yeah, I yeah. Mean, it's
1: it's insane in terms of his yeah integration plan if you will or his integration strategy um but for us we're we're young enough on that side of the business that <clears throat> we foresee us leveraging our resources to our benefit, but we haven't tapped it just Mm -hmm. yet. Now we're doing kind of the basics. We have a website, of course, Instagram account, kind of the standard protocol, all of the things that um, our clients that we recommend our clients have, we do currently for ourselves, Mm -hmm. just because I think that's, ridiculous when you recommend something to someone, but you've never done it yourself or Mm -hmm. self-practice as a company, you know, so, um, but we have not dipped into, okay, let's pretend the refinery house is an external account. Let's go market the refinery house. We just, we haven't gotten to that point yet in terms of maturation Mm -hmm. because, we're just kind of getting our feet set, you know, we're kind of in that yep. position, the agile ready position. And, and we've just sort of gotten there. We've kind of been just internal building out stuff, processes, making sure that delivery is great while we're remodeling the office while we're, you know, so yep. there hasn't been too much time for us to look internally and say, okay, let's go market ourselves now. Um, historically in all of my businesses, I mean, I, I, I didn't have an Instagram account myself until maybe 2016, I think. So, how non-millennial of you? Man. Right, exactly. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yes, um, I also sent all my thank you notes on a typewriter. So, I saw that. you know, <laughs> um, but uh,
0: that was the second note I received in the past week from a millennial. Handwritten note like that—it was awesome to see. That's so great. Some, some yeah. things are coming back. You're
1: coming back around, yeah. <laughs> the hipsters are really making their impression on today's culture. But uh, overall, yeah, we haven't really fully tapped our our agency side for our own benefit yet. So I'll mm-hmm. I'll circle back up with you and let you know how much mileage I get out of out of our own team okay. when it when it really starts to happen.
0: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about how you go about marketing. You know, talk about yeah. all the different aspects, both the branding, but then also how do you convert from um, from from marketing and brand awareness to actual intent to purchase to to purchasing, and I don't think when we were your size that we did a very good job of that at all. But we also didn't own a digital agency, <laughs> so right. I'm curious where where you guys are along that process. No,
1: that's that's a very fair um question. I I think for us um, this is my first business where I feel like I have more of a plan, mm-hmm. and I know I just said that I'm kind of day by day take it and just see how it comes, but. For the first time, I feel like my feet are really set. I'm looking at this brand as a legacy brand and forward for many years, not just forward to an exit. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're doing things way more intentionally than we've ever done in terms of my my close corporate uh, team. So in terms of delivery, I mean, we're, we're going all the way down to preparing each meeting agenda on a really nice looking uh, deck or, or document for our clients, just so that everything is completely spoon fed to them. And they Mm -hmm. feel like there's no barrier to entry to working with us. We kind of are full service and we do everything. So that's really
0: sales enablement. You give these to your, to your sales team. They can overcome objections. They can. Yes, that's
1: that's exactly right. So it's kind of one of our things that we do is, is is everything that we touch or push to a client is been reviewed multiple times and it's perfectly polished. Um, and so I think kind of back to your question conceptually for us, in my earlier businesses, I never knew what was going to happen and, and I never really had a plan. I was just kind of, okay, I see an opportunity. Let me solve that problem for someone and see what happens. And now it's like we're... Yes, we're solving problems for our clients, but I'm also looking at this as we just need to maintain incredible service quality. Uh, and so we're, we're being super intentional and in planning things for a little bit longer term to maximize our overall client experience. Um, and, and I think that's gonna allow us to, our client retention is gonna be significantly higher than it is with other agencies. There's a lot of of millennial agencies, as I'm calling them, popping up right now that are um, they're they're very fast and, and, and agile and loud and all of this stuff. But but they're 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 less people focused. Um, so that's kind of one of our core principles is mm-hmm. is we're, we're a people first company. So I I think it's it's all about. Um, client experience and, and retention for us. I think in terms of new marketing and new business. Historically, I've I've not spent a single dollar marketing ourselves. It's always been word of mouth through my network or through you know our employees networks or my family's network or or whoever um so i've just kind of leveraged close contacts but this is the first time where we are currently working on our own strategy to to go after the clients that we've identified that we'd really like to work with
0: that's great it's it's funny when when you think about building that business for the long term as opposed to exiting it i heard I think it was a private equity guy who told me, and I'll butcher this, but I'll I'll, I'll give it a shot. That's never stopped me before. <laughs> um, build a business that you want to own forever, and you probably won't have to own it forever.
1: Wow! Yeah, that's a very <laughs> yeah. wise statement. You didn't butcher that at all. That that hit home
0: pretty pretty good there. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 a great guideline. Whether you keep the business or sell it, it the, the the per the company buying it is going to appreciate that you built it the right way. That's as exactly well. right. So. Love that. So do you do much in terms of content? I know you said you're not spending money on marketing, but do you, uh, these days, and and one of our millennial leaders at at Level really um, taught me this about the role that content played in our marketing because we did invest very heavily eventually in it, and we did eventually get it right largely because of this particular uh, younger leader within the company. Um, But how do you view content today are you encouraging folks to blog or do speak at events or my uh,
1: my saying is content is king mm-hmm. um i think the more content the better and not necessarily longer form but frequency of content sure keeps you top of mind not only in search engines but also people's brains as well um but for us to to me uh quality content wins over volume of content uh, I would much rather have a a well written piece or a, a great looking account or something than just tons of stuff that's meh okay. Yeah. And so that that's my prescription to our clients is I want to do as much content production as we possibly can, so long as it still passes our quality standards.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I think I think that's a great strategy, and uh, we we learned a lot of lessons. Things we did wrong or right. And one of the challenges we had was we got very good, I felt, at targeting content to the right buyer persona and getting it in front of them at the right time and then tracking it and then turning that into making a phone call. Mm -hmm. And because we got so good at that, we started maybe turning a blind eye, um, not a blind eye, but we just had a very different viewpoint on some of that other longer tail engagement that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. We had a guy who would write 15 page blog post that I, I'm a fairly technical guy and it was hard for me to get through. He was brilliant, but I was fairly hard to get sure. through and and the editors would push back on it and say, this doesn't meet our content guidelines. And my argument was always, well then let's not target it through our engine. Don't publish it on social media. Don't, don't, don't push it through our campaign manager. Um, but let it sit out there because the search engines, will find why not? It and, yeah. And, and you, you would see, Vendors would pick up on these articles sometimes three or four months later and tweet it, and then you'd get 10,000 reads the next day. It's and, brilliant. And it's hard because you – you, you, you you need to balance the two the long tail engagement with the I'm going to actually make a sale off of this
1: sure and and for me it's not necessarily about length or like technicality it's just generally is it well written yep. like so for that for that document that you speak of the 15 page it's like okay do I look at it does it make technical sense yes yep. all right let's put it out there then yep. and see what happens Exactly.
0: I'm not going to send it to a CEO <laughs> right
1: exactly right yeah so
0: um how do you balance internal projects versus billable work?
1: Oh, that is such a great question and, and one that I'd like to to hear your thoughts on too. Sure. Um, for us, it is, I have a 90-day rule. Okay. So a new internal project, if it can't be close to standing on its own in 90 days.
0: That's a great rule. Then I've I, never thought of it that way. Then I
1: don't think that it's a worthwhile project mm-hmm. or business. Um, And that's not only from simply conceptually like is it going to gross revenue in in 90 days it's more like if people are bought in enough on the idea they will make something happen in 90 days Mm -hmm. and if they don't they're not bought in enough And, and I can't I'm at the point in my career where I don't have the capacity to be the guy on the new project and so I create a team and I allow them to have a 90-day runway to use our mm-hmm. own internal resources within reason, of course. And if they can make something happen in 90 days, good, we'll keep going. If they can't, then we're going to shut that one down and, and move to something else.
0: Yeah, I think the bigger problem I always had, and, and I love the 90-day guideline. I think that that's brilliant. But the bigger problem we had was that we would have projects that we knew could improve, where we believed, we, we never know, but we, we sure. believed could improve the company. Yeah, And- people would get gung ho about it and then we'd put them on it. And then the minute the almighty dollar calls, like it, you, you, just, you pull them off and you've lost all the momentum That's exactly you know, right. on the internal project. And so I, I wish I could say that, that, that we did a particularly good, good job with it. I think one of the things that we did get better about was if we were using internal resources for things that we would be better served going and hiring a 50 or 60 or $70,000 web developer to just bang we would just something go out. do it because you, you what, what ends up happening is you take somebody that you're paying 150 thousand a year and you have them work on this side project it's ROI negative it, then it's yeah it's ROI negative and they could be out billing at a couple in your case thousand dollars an hour maybe but, um, but but the thought there is well it's not an incremental dollar and I'm not making an overhead higher but the the internal systems got so complex for us by the time I was
1: you needed those $150,000 $1, guys we, we wanted them
0: billing it. but then we wanted to go hire the younger people and, and less experience to, learn to and go train do the on internal them. systems love way. that but, but again even you, you say it's $60,000 that's not as expensive as the 150000 resource but it's they're never going to bill you're saying this is right. all you're going to work that on that is a is complete Salesforce expense or, yeah. it's
1: not a there's yeah there's no income received off of that no. yeah. so at the refinery house um we we love using branded terms so i i called something the shed there's actually an easter egg on our website to to find the shed and i'm not going to disclose its location i'm going to go
0: find it and put it in the show notes
1: (laughs) (laughs) please yes uh so uh, at the shed each employee is required to go to the shed uh once a quarter to to come up with you know creative uh, idea that they would like to pursue with our own internal resources and then we kind of go around the table and we say okay who's whose quarterly project are we going to allow them to to build out oh, that's awesome and so yeah we we just kind of encourage that ongoing creativity curiosity goes yep. back to one of your founding principles as well which i think is is really great but um so for us it, it's a requirement to go once a quarter you know, think of something on your own, present it to the rest of the team, and and see if it's if it's worth pursuing.
0: I, I like that a lot. We didn't do enough of that, I don't think, because um, again, you get so caught up in the billable work, sure. and the sales work. Sure. Sure.
1: So this it's an interesting thing for me to be focused on that kind of stuff because normally I, I definitely would not be. I'm I'm a a revenue mm-hmm. fiend, you know, yep. and now being hardened over the last few days or a few years uh to to be that revenue fiend it's it's been an interesting thing for me to sit back and say yes this project is probably not going to make me a single dollar but i believe that the value of the project is actually significantly higher than a customer's fifteen thousand dollar xyz project you know it's like i I i think we're really valuing that curiosity and creativity ongoing
0: one of the things we did, um, cause we had some people who said we want to just create products and I'm all for that. And one of the great success stories out of the town where I'm from in Washington, DC is a company called Appian. I'm going to interview oh. one of the, one of the guys that is named on a couple of their patents and started a services business that, that only does Appian. And so, so I'm fascinated by them. They built, they started as a consulting company and then ultimately built a product that they've now IPO'd on. Wow. Um, so fantastic success story and everybody sees those and and wants to go build products because in theory consultants see things that nobody else sees because you're seeing way more things and you you see them faster very diverse um (coughs) i always gave the guidance to folks look if you want to work on something that you think might be a product that's great and i didn't say you have 90 days to do it but i said first off like build a github build it on github Set it up as a public project if you're f- comfortable with it being open source for right now. Mm-hmm. And then blog about the process because we'll get value from the blog. We'll, we'll promote it if it's w- well written enough and fits into our, our marketing strategy. I really strategy. like that. But then you come back and you read the blog. So we're getting some brand awareness out of it. Um, then if it's useful and, and enough people are reading it and downloading it on GitHub and that sort of thing – then treat it as a framework for selling consulting projects. So let's create a productized consulting offering focused on this quote XYZ. product. Yeah. And then if you if if you have enough success with that, then let's talk about making it a product that companies are paying for. And we didn't for full disclosure, we never created one product with that methodology. But that was that was my way I like that concept de- a lot. Like, uh, Let's get the value that we can, but let's give you the creative outlet that you need. And the reality is you're going to learn so much in doing that that you become more valuable as a consultant was always my theory.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. I think my um, sort of closeted hope is that in building something new, you have to think about a lot more stuff outside of just your role in yeah. that specific project. Once you – there's a huge difference between – being a role inside of a project and being the project owner. Oh, huge. And so to to me it's it's very helpful for them to have context on what I deal with on a daily basis versus kind of their specific role. Okay, I know that I need to do these 10 things today and then I'm good to go and to me it's 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 you kind of mold them into to being more agile being more aware and and well
0: i think the empathy they have for the business owner at that point i I like to give the example one the first project i did when i moved to charlotte was with family dollar and we were doing a rollout we were doing part of a rollout for them of a new point of sale system and then our what we build them for that work might've been $2 million, but I want to say that the total cost of ownership for the overall product rollout Mm -hmm. was North of $180 million. So it isn't just the build. Like we get caught up in the build as the consultants, but the product owner is thinking about all of these other things that, that that go to roll out to to 7,000 stores. It's Um,
1: crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's great.
0: That's great. Well, what, What type of overhead do you have in place at this point? In
1: terms of dollars per month? Well,
0: no, no, just the roles that you would call. Like, you're probably overhead. You're probably not a billable resource at this point. And then do you have any sales, marketing, accounting? Not
1: too many right now. Like, they're kind of all, you know, multidisciplinary in terms of of what they can do. I I encourage all of my employees to be salesmen Mm -hmm. and not in the the sleazy used car salesman way. But just... I think if we're building a a business that we're all proud of, inevitably everyone becomes a salesman for your business. Mm -hmm. And so that's our current strategy in terms of sales. Now, I'm 80% focused on new business. And Mm -hmm. and to me, that means not only managing our internal uh, assets to be ready to support that new business and also our the way that we look externally from a digital landscape mm. perspective. I mean, all of those things factor into our ability to go get new business. So do you
0: have anybody that's dedicated sales or marketing I other don't. than you? Because what you just described to me are, are classic sales and marketing. What about from an accounting perspective? Are you Do you outsource all the business? All the invoicing activities, or do you? So, um, or do you do that yourself? I I did it myself when I was at the size where you are. So,
1: funnily enough, um, I've been doing it ourselves. You know, Mm -hmm. kind of internally shared. If Mm -hmm. if your client that you own does something, you go and you create the invoice in QuickBooks and dispatch it to them, and then you kind of CC our controller, but our contract controller. Um, Actually, funnily enough, uh, I'm bringing on my mom on board next week to to become kind of our interim QuickBooks manager, accounting, okay. kind of office manager, human being. Yeah. So That's I can't awesome. think of anyone more more trustworthy. And <laughs> and uh, I mean, she is on top of it. I can tell you that That's from good. childhood experience. So I'm, <laughs> I'm excited to, to bring her on to kind of help us. Right now, it doesn't make sense for us to go hire a $150,000 a year CFO yep. um, to kind of manage both sides of the business. We had a contract CFO for a little while, but now, um, I think for us, we're, we're at a place where common sense and then just managing day to day invoicing and accounting is is all we really need to yep. get us to the next level.
0: Yep. No, that that makes sense. Have you thought ahead? Obviously, your mom is your next overhead investment, but because <laughs> that's an overhead. role. Sure. But what is have you thought beyond that? Do you think that there comes a point where you need to hire dedicated sales or marketing or administrative or so or other, um, HR, that type of thing?
1: Yes. So I've, I'm trying to kick that can down the road as far as possible in terms of HR or dedicated non-revenue producing asset in terms of you know, a marketing person or something like that. Um, I, I would say, though, that, that our next hire for me, selfishly, is, is someone that lands in the account management slash executive assistant role. Mm -hmm. and just can support me through day-to-day activity Uh, we're getting to the point where i can you know in a week uh in an 80-hour work week i can have you know 40 to 50 hours worth of meetings you know and and conference calls and stuff like that and so my overall production has significantly decreased the larger we've gotten and so i'm I'm avidly looking and seeking for someone who can help me increase my office's production specifically. Absolutely.
0: And I would encourage you cause that's not normally a high priced resource. To, that was to my next yeah. question
1: yeah. is a, how many of you had and, and so what are your experiences and like, what's the kind of type of person that you would go after now having been through kind of several.
0: Yeah. So I would, as I build the Defiance brand, and there's more to it than this podcast, this is just the content marketing True. piece of, of, of what I'm doing with that and then some investments that I've been making. Um, when I get really serious about building it, and, and there's a couple of things that are going going to trigger that, one of the first things I'm going to do is hire an executive assistant. Now, I won't think of this person as helping with account management. I Personally, I think account management is the most important thing mm-hmm that any company can do although i think marketing is great at landing new logos and you need to do that i think growing your existing logos is the most important function that a company does and therefore your account managers and in the way we've structured things at level at a and the way they work at defiance um account management needs to be somebody who knows enough about the technology and the clients and sales sure. salespersonship but i could see combining the two as well at NextGrid, i would say that they've combined the two functions pretty well and have mm-hmm. actually been able to to to, to build some um to, to, to build some growth by that approach. But it's it's a little different than the way I would approach it. But but one of the first hires I will make will be executive support. Good. Now that's at, comforting at Stratified they've um Brad, the chief revenue officer and Derek the CEO and Kevin the CTO. They're really the three people who who, who run that company and the reason it's been so successful. And I interviewed Derek a couple podcasts ago. They were really smart and brought on um, two folks who help out with just managing their day-to-day and making sure that they're not wasting time and making sure that, and, and it isn't, the, the work that work is very important. But if you're thinking about six sales calls that you're prepping for and you're thinking about, you know, and you're thinking about the flight and what time you're going to get on it and then where you're going to book your hotel. Yeah. And then you're thinking about how do I schedule all of these other things. It's, it's just hard to do that and, and maintain exactly right. effectiveness.
1: Um, yeah, I've never had an executive assistant. And I, I think in terms of their account management perspective, I just want them to manage the accounts that that I'm in control of. Okay. Um, not necessarily the company-wide account manager. Um, those are also our next... Mm -hmm. Hires. Uh, We currently have one uh, on the marketing side, and we need to be at three to five here in the next, you know, 60 to 90 days. So um, overall, though, yeah, I'm I'm uh, uh, feeling the burn in terms of the situation where you just described. We're we're uh, have some travel this week, company wide travel, and. Um, who had to book all the travel and everything that was me it's a great use of your time oh it's it's brilliant yeah economics 101 right there would say that that that's not what's supposed to be happening but Screw economics one oh one. So um yeah, I, I can I can feel where that would just really free me up. I mean you know, over the course of the next two days before we fly, I'm worried about all of the logistics of our trip where mm-hmm. really I should just be kind of really focused on our clients. And so to me that's the next iteration in my specific office is to allow me to worry about just clients, just strategy, just the kind of real meat and potatoes of our day to day business.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, I um some of the best it wasn't the same advice, but it was along, along the same lines. Some of the best advice I ever got was from a gentleman named Chris Halligan, who's a very successful entrepreneur and businessman here, here in Charlotte. And, um, and, and he told me um, very early on at Level, uh, Chris and I were doing all of the selling. And we had an inside sales rep who wasn't selling much. We didn't equip him with the tools, so I don't blame him. But he mm-hmm. never, never sold anything. And I was just trying to find the right salesperson, the right person to, but not just salesperson, but real VP of sales. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh,
1: that had not only the, the tactical sales strategy, but the conceptual sales strategy and could then impart that on everyone else. And just
0: drive that. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I had asked Halligan to refer one of his friends and the timing wasn't right. And he said, can I just give you a suggestion? He's like, if, He's like, you want to hire somebody to lead sales. That's a very important function for any company, Mm -hmm. arguably the most important. Sure. Arguably.
1: It's your first impression to every customer. Yeah,
0: exactly. And he said, I suggest that you pay them what you need to pay them and you make them a business partner. And he's like, don't cheapskate on the equity, give them real equity. And he laid out some very tactical guidelines that were very, very helpful, um, And I'm not going to (laughs) share, but, but it was suffice to say it was more equity than I would have given otherwise. And it was very aggressive, but it was also very smart, like have it vest over a schedule and, Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and I think that that applies to, to really anything that you build on your team, not that you need to give a bunch of equity, but that think about what it is that you want to improve in the company and then go after it with the you know, go, go after it the way that you need to go after it to make it happen. And so in the case of an executive assistant or, or, um, some of these other roles, you know, they're all going to be different depending on just how chaotic and hectic that is and how much skill is required by that. But you need to not think, you need to not think about what is this going to do to my cost structure and that this isn't for you. This is just, this is for me. Yeah. Think about what you want the company to actually look like and how you want it to behave. And then, build it accordingly that
2: makes
1: so, a lot of yeah. sense yeah and that kind of ties back into what you were saying if you build a business that you want to own forever you might not own it forever and yeah i, know I just <laughs> tweaked that a little bit but sure that's kind of sure. yeah that same principle love that
0: yep so what are you doing? I'm I'm gonna, I'm just hitting all of the things yeah. that nobody ever does well at any consulting company. You know, so wonderful. I apologize for Yeah, you're for just dragging throwing me you. under the bus yeah, there yeah, dragging yeah. you in, into this shit storm. But <clears throat> um what are you doing for knowledge sharing? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, yes. By the way, we've shifted gears. In yes, the first was on the getting Defiance podcast we've gone to Red wine. This is not one of my favorites. This is one I picked up, but I thought it would be nice to have have well, thank a glass you very of red much. wine because I think you're a wine guy too. I am. You know. Yeah,
1: I do enjoy the old grape. Um, I've currently I've been on a little white wine kick lately, which has been interesting. I'm traditionally you know all big bold mm-hmm. reds, but ever since you know the weather temperature started to increase, I'm now at a place in my maturity to where I don't feel like I'm gonna be looked at as a female if I drink white wine. So
0: So I've gone all the way in on rose, which oh, is actually my man. My new, yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. it's all about right now. I've there. taken it a step further and actually will drink a frose. Everywhere I see a frose I drink. Rose, have you
1: have you gone all the way to the ice pop in the rose? I have not. No okay. that sounds amazing. so that is like the pinnacle of of okay. the path that you're going down. <laughs> um, yeah there's a there's a frozen popsicle in a sparkling prosecco and so you can get this kind oh. of multi flavored going you know i mean we'll we'll have to okay. we'll do it
0: chrissy if you're listening we must have this yes
1: absolutely
0: <laughs> well cheers by the cheers,
1: way cheers yes cheers thank you for <laughs>
0: supplying the grapes here so so again back to knowledge sharing and i'll just tell you this um it, i'll just share this i i don't know that anybody ever gets this right it's, yeah this is for those who have never been in consulting you learn more shit good and bad that is more useful and that this data is has to be valuable and we all know it's valuable and we know that there are things that we've learned on other projects that could save our clients a lot of time and and yet i don't think anybody does a really good job yeah yeah as well save us time as well exactly no
1: i i think that you have hit on um the thing that we are doing the worst right now which is managing um our knowledge base Mm -hmm. We have a, a notes repository, mm-hmm. but that's about as the extent of our knowledge base and, and sharing. Um, that is one of my kind of potentially Q3, Q4 initiatives mm-hmm. is clean all of that up because I think out of that, a lot of new processes will be born, mm-hmm. but where I'm not in a day-to-day position to be able to focus my time on that just yet unfortunately I I understand it's very valuable Mm -hmm. and can see how it will make us run overall significantly more efficient as a business as we go because we can look back on our experience and our history and just say yeah we're going to do we're going to eliminate these five things and add these three things and this is going to go a lot smoother but um, for me right now that's lower on the list than it probably should be
0: that's always the story yeah
1: yeah and so um
0: we always end up with an email blast going out that says hey who knows anything about xyz yeah and (laughs) slack improved things a little bit for us it really has yeah.
1: yeah i think overall just in terms of communication i think that's knowledge sharing one oh one is just general communication um and and slack has has helped a little bit it's less mm-hmm. siloed in an email inbox and more kind of fluid in the your slack channels but still overall i, I know that we're we're operating at probably 10 of mm-hmm. of our what we actually should be doing in terms of knowledge sharing and, and managing that data
0: good i'm glad to know that we weren't so, the yeah, only ones just who just run
1: at me it. over and hit me with a bus <laughs> why don't you
0: the do you have any partnerships that you leverage for sales or delivery or or anything else? Like it's a good question for delivery
1: yes um sales not currently other than just my close network and I've made it all uh i've made them all aware that you know we're we're designed to help people and we're gonna do a really great job so I think that um I'm just trying to make a our personal, intrapersonal network comfortable recommending us to their friends. I Mm -hmm. think that the word of mouth recommendation is far more valuable, saves you more time inevitably because uh, for example, we went to a a new client last week, a, a very large machine shop. They're producing things for SpaceX and Blue Origin, among a oh, wow. couple of other companies. They're yes. allowed to work for both. That's they, great. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I mean, <laughs> yeah. but total ITAR-compliant facility. I mean, just an amazing place, hundreds of machines, mm-hmm. very precise, and and uh, we, we got that business out of a recommendation, so we kind of skipped the entire intro and the entire real sales process mm-hmm. just based on a solid recommendation, and we just got down to tactically, okay, how can we help you? We, we don't have to do the song and dance and prove our, mm-hmm. our worth and our value to you. It's just you, you're trusting whoever recommended us to you and you're allowing us to just come in and start day one helping versus that's great. Yeah. So that's been really helpful for
0: us. Excellent. What do you spend most of your time doing these <laughs> days? Not, not the last couple of weeks getting the office built out, but generally where do you spend most of your time?
1: Generally, I spend most of my time kind of thinking critically on not only problems for our customers, but problems for ourselves. So um, I would call myself, if I had another title besides uh, CEO, I would say that it'd be lead strategist and that from a client perspective, Mm -hmm. as well as an internal perspective. So I'm constantly thinking of creative ways to have our brand exposed to new Mm -hmm. people, as well as... Um, solving problems for the brands that we support.
0: That's great. Now, that's where you want to be spending most of your time. I can't yeah. imagine a better place It's to, a f- it's It's fun.
1: It. I, I really like it a lot. I get to communicate with a lot of people that are significantly more intelligent than I am, which just makes me better Yeah, overall. It that is.
0: That is. Um, so what is the future for a refinery house? Do you plan to keep this one for the long haul?
1: I think so, man. I think this is the one at least... For the foreseeable future, this is this is it. I mean, we're we're going all in on this one, and, and we kind of want to be um, a reputable company uh, in terms of, of quality of services delivered. So I, I think this is this is where I'm gonna stay for a while. I'm, I'm excited by um, some side projects as well, but this is gonna be the meat and potatoes for the for the foreseeable future.
0: Well, that's great. So I'm gonna shift gears a little bit here on the questioning away from refinery house but before i do is there anything else you'd like to speak about or anything we've missed or
1: no i think we've we've kind of gone a to z here um this is the first time that i've publicly sort of recounted my uh business history in (laughs) in a very long time and my very short business history
0: well Um, and this is what i'm trying to get with with the podcast is that i just the nature of my career has led me to. I have a lot of interesting discussions, and a lot of my friends end up asking me about yeah. different conversations that I have. And yours, I find so fascinating. It would be fascinating if you were my age, but I think it's even more so because of because of the compressed timeline that, that that you've done it on.
1: Yeah, well, I I very much appreciate that. No, I'm fascinated by. I'm more fascinated by your your story as well. I mean, that's it's a it's a significant significant story, and um, I'm just thankful that we've gotten to know each other. Fairly well over the past few weeks and, and months, and um, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm looking forward to uh, to potential projects together. Really
0: well, and, and along those lines, um, uh, uh, you know, folks, Brian and I actually just invested in a software vendor that is revolutionizing software and payment processing in the legal cannabis industry. Yeah, uh, so this is our first collaboration of many. I hope. Um, And in honor of that, I thought that it was a good idea for us to break out a vape pen with fully legal hemp in it, because it is hemp and CBD are fully legal. Totally legal
1: in the state of North Carolina. Yep, Yep, absolutely. And that's where we are, and that's what we're smoking.
0: So hopefully North Carolina follows suit of the other more progressive states around us, and the next time we do this interview, it's gone full legal, and we'll do a full Joe Rogan, Elon Musk impression. But in yes. the meantime, in the meantime, go, we got to
1: we got to stick with the, <laughs> the legal stuff here. No, I appreciate that. We're we're actually um, I don't know if I've told you, but we're working on a CBD brand as well. So oh, that's excellent. I'm excited by the, the by the potential of that. Um,
0: I've been using CBD oil myself um, and I've been experimenting with the doses. I, I try some that are very high and some that are low. For those who don't know, CBD oil. There's two major components to, to to marijuana: THC, which is the psychoactive component, and then CBD, which is a non-psychoactive component, and is fully legal federally, as I understand it. It is as, as part of the industrial yeah. hemp. And CBD is known to caught to, is known to be treat to used in the treatment of a lot of things where other other tr- more conventional treatments have failed. And a lot of it comes down, from my understanding, to its operation on on inflammation pathways. And I've certainly, when I've taken it, whether in the form of a cream or a tincture or, or pills that I've taken from, from you, from your experiment, um, I've seen that the inflammation levels go down. I've also seen that my deep sleep, I track all of my sleep with my aura ring here and my deep sleep is just piss poor. I get plenty of sleep, over a, a week period or two week period but my deep sleep uh, tends to be quality so you're at the
1: quantity not quality yeah, stage exactly yeah
0: and and the cbd seems to help that when i when i bump the dosages great yeah up, i'm still so. waiting
1: on my aura to show up good here. luck They're back order yeah you you convince me i've I've been on the list for a while now but um overall i've had similar experience with with cbd in terms of quality of sleep and just mm-hmm. allowing you to really hit that 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 complete deep realm yep of sleep so absolutely that's great
0: well, Well, Brian, I think the only thing you like to do more than start companies is buy cars. Uh, (laughs) Talk to the audience a little bit about what your garage looks like these days.
1: Yeah. Um, So I am a a car fanatic. Uh, I'm completely addicted. And it was it was such a neat thing to learn that um, you yourself are are not naive or not aware of of the vehicles in your garage um but yeah so currently uh, my daily is a c63 amg the four-door model Mm -hmm. um it's it's actually it's the pre 5.5 v8 twin turbo so it's the 6.3 naturally aspirated v8 oh wow Um, and uh, i've tuned it i've redone some internals um, as well as a little bit of exhaust and intake work uh we're just over six hundred at the rear wheels in that wow. that vehicle wow. in terms of horsepower. And it's Sorry. not a heavy
0: car either. Like, I mean, it's it's I mean it's heavy, but it's, it's not, not it, like it's not like my S. It's class It's not a Rolls Royce <laughs> yeah. or it's
1: not an S class. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But um yeah, so it's it's actually the same motor that's in the S sixty three of that same year, just detuned and we've kind of retuned it okay. back to the S sixty three spec and actually a little bit beyond. So Okay. Yeah. Um other than that, I mean I've had i've had a lot of cars over the years i mean it started i mean i've had everything from a toyota fj cruiser all the way to a super hard single seat uh, m3 and everything in between um full bolt on 135 uh bmw of mm-hmm. course um i mean just so many vehicles uh, i was thankful enough that um Last year I was able to to help my dad get a a 996 911 turbo. Oh, wow. So that lives in his garage. It's available. That was the
0: 996 the last air cooled or was it 997? It was actually the, that
1: cool. was the first liquid cooled okay, the 996. First so the 93 th- Nine, 993 the is one. the last air cooled. Yeah, and uh I'm currently hunting a 1991 964 okay. 911 um C2S if anyone out there has one <laughs> they want to sell just hit me up in the comments. We can make it happen um but yeah i mean i've had so many different cars um and and i'm i'm constantly looking at them i'm right now i'm on the list at uh hendrick bmw here shout out yeah (laughs) scott you're the man um i'm on the list number one in charlotte for the m2 cs which is is supposed to be coming out early fall um
0: so it's interesting i've owned motorsport and i've owned amg mm -hmm. and i'd love to just get your thoughts on on the two cuz i thought i was a motorsport guy only and i love and what now, they stand for now have come to do, the dark but, side yeah i've come to the dark side but i i, I for me and i want to hear your opinion cuz you're a lot smarter on this than i am but no. for me it, like although I love the AMG and I love the particular AMG that I have, sure. I feel like I identify with the motorsport more, but I interesting,
1: know, yeah. very interesting. Um, so to me that the M's they're a little bit sharper, they're a little lighter, they're a little cleaner, you know, they're more precise, you know, an M three comes through on all four wheels, no smoke, perfectly balanced, mm-hmm. hits the apex uh, and then, you know, ascends and it's a uh, low or high horsepower, low torque way, you know, mm-hmm. and, and the AMG, it, it comes through the corner completely sideways, all four wheels smoking, loud, just complete <laughs> yeah. savagery. Still hits the apex and, you know, but it goes off in a cloud of just pure torque,
0: yeah. you know, so. With 27 speakers blaring. Exactly. <laughs> and just,
1: yeah, exactly. That is that is 100% correct. So. Um, I know that that you mentioned you you identify with motorsport a little. I bit think more. I
0: do. I can't say that I like one better than the other, but I do. So I've
1: I've had both, yeah. Um, as you have, and I can say now that the AMG is my clear preference. Yeah. Um, just in terms of of complete savagery. Uh, I've well I've... the
2: the
0: sound. There's no doubt. When I when I traded in my last M5, and they're like, "What'd you get?" and I told them the S63 yeah, Coupe, right. and they were like. They looked at me and they're like, we get it the the, the, the sales reps and they were like the one thing that we can never touch AMG on is the sound yeah it's it's, it's it is it's a savage sound and yet it's the most comfortable and refined ride like it's, it's amazing yeah. isn't
1: it they they give you the best of both worlds yeah the the M's I know that they they've started to pipe the exhaust note in through the speakers yeah, and cheating. I knew once that yeah. they did that they kind of lost my attention a little bit in terms that's of for Tesla the rawness. Tesla needs to do that like precisely you, you
0: can do it naturally with your engine exactly
1: <laughs> yeah if you can't do it naturally then you're doing it wrong yeah in, in my opinion so
0: yeah <laughs> do you have a grail car at this point
1: oh so many grail cars
0: i think um a realist. <laughs> and the answer doesn't have to be one but yeah
1: so um i mean it, it it goes back you know all the way to the to the you know shelby cobra the 427 ac shelby cobra and,
0: um i'm not a muscle car guy but that's not a muscle car either me neither it's, yeah.
1: it's it's just like it's art, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, a hand hammered aluminum body with just significant horsepower that was yep. amazing. Um, and then it goes probably to the F50 Ferrari. Uh, yep. You know, kind of. Re-
0: I mean, that that thing is just mad, completely mental, in my opinion. It's funny for me. It goes to the nine fifty nine. Oh,
1: I skipped the nine five nine. But but year. that
0: was also the same time as the Ferrari F similar. So I, I would have said an F forty over an F fifty, but it was just because I you were probably like three years old when these cars came That's, out. You're back. exactly
1: right. No, the F <laughs> fifty just did it for me.
0: Um, A because, much better car than the F forty, by the way. Ah, I,
2: that, yeah. I
1: don't know, man. That that was the I, th- I believe that was the for- first um, forced induction ferrari yeah. the tt8 in that point and then the and f-50. from by all
0: accounts the most frightening experience waiting for that turbo to kick that you. is what I understand <laughs>
1: same for the 959 though yeah. um from what I understand I, I've I know several people that have owned these vehicles I myself have not yet been in an f40 or an F50 but um, I'm not either I, I've sat in an f50 and and seen the motor I mean that v12 is just i mean yeah. that that is significant but and then after the f50 i'd say it it pretty much comes completely modernized to the la ferrari the 918 i'm not a big mclaren fan but um you know i i think the 488 pista is, is a realistic grail car that yeah. that i i think is just
0: well, that's an interesting point. There are realistic rail cars and non realistic. Yes.
1: Yeah, I've drawn the line out. I, I probably won't be Bugatti's next brand new 17 million euro buyer. So.
0: <laughs> well, so if that's not your next purchase, what is? Mm, uh,
1: so, as I mentioned, I'm on the list for the M2CS. I think with the other day we were, mm-hmm. we were chatting and I offered up my spot. But um, if I still have that spot when it comes around, I think. I think that's gonna be it. Okay. I'm really excited by that car. It's it uh, for those that don't know. It's the BMW M2, brand new, same chassis as the as the current M2, but they've switched the motors out to be the current M4 motor, oh, which, wow. which is the S65. And they've also option uh, offered carbon ceramic brakes as an okay. option with a lot more carbon as well throughout the body. So it not only drops drops weight, increases power. The brakes, are, I mean, that's a huge deal for anyone that wants to run it on the track, and then um, increase kind of tuning ability from the S65 motor. I mean, those cars are they're making seven, eight hundred horsepower easy. Jeez, yeah. So <laughs> it's gonna be a blast. <laughs> it
0: has to stop at some point this horsepower war. <laughs> I don't, yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's wild. You know, here we have uh, the gentleman Casey and Kevin Howith who started underground racing. And right now they're they're twin turboing every new Huracan and an R8 that comes out, and they're making well over two thousand horsepower. And they're uh, they're running the standing half mile, which is zero to the end of a half mile distance, and they're doing over two hundred fifty miles an hour. Jeez. So, you know, they're currently winning the the speed war and the horsepower war. I mean, there's always going to be someone with a faster, more expensive car than you. So, yeah.
0: yeah. You know, it's just what makes you happy. What does it for you? No, I agree. Let's be honest. If we just want to go fast, we'll get a Tesla Roadster. <laughs> and it's game over, right? But When it... Elon produces them. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, that may be 12 years from now. Yeah, but... if
1: he doesn't get thrown in jail by the SEC. <laughs> <laughs> is,
0: is there a car you've owned that you'd call
1: your favorite? Mm, you know, uh, I was thinking about that question on the way over here literally today, and Weirdly, I can say the C63 is my favorite car that I've owned because it's so versatile. Yeah. It's, it's it's I've taken it on a significant road trip. It's been phenomenal. Halfway through the road trip, you can blast the Corvette on the interstate, yep. you know, but then still have four doors and a huge trunk to put all your stuff in. Yep. Um, it has a phenomenal sound system, better than any other car that I've ever had. And so to me, all around, I, I would pick that one. That's great. One. And it, I mean... It, i've retuned it as i said so it's you know it's pretty ridiculous
0: but my my broker um that i work with just got another business partner of mine uh c63 and he loves it he absolutely and he this it's is great. Probably, he's owned a g wagon he's owned the old two-door s class i forget what they called it the cl yeah and then um, he had an old SEL, and then he's got a collector's SEL as well. Oh, wow. so, and and he, he absolutely loves it. So I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm going to go visit him in Dallas in a few, a couple weeks here, and I'm looking forward to, to checking the C63 out. Yeah, take it for a nice little rip. Yeah, exactly. So, so what else do you enjoy doing in your spare time?
1: Um, let's see. I, I enjoy, so I, I went to College at Charleston, so – I inherently enjoy eating, mm-hmm. um, you know, the food scene The cuisine there. down there is amazing. Yeah, and, I mean, my dad's been pushing nice cuisine on me since the day I was born, so it's it's kind of natural at this point. But um,
0: but you haven't gained any weight from it, obviously. <laughs> is that because you've got good metabolism, or are you working out I on the, on right, the
1: weekends? I think right now it's my <laughs> metabolism supporting me through this one. Uh, you know, I've been picking your brain on the the gym questions gym and diet questions lately so we'll we'll see what happens when i really put a solid effort into that um but overall just being on the water and mm-hmm. whether that's the beach or fishing really really enjoy that um i get out and shoot as much as i can mm-hmm. uh ski sporting clays that's
0: great i've not done that but i hear that's a yeah.
1: lot yeah oh well then come on you'll have to you'll have to <laughs> come any anytime you want to go it's just about 20 minutes from here so okay
0: yeah, that's great. I just spoke to a friend of mine from a prior life who he said, I'm coming down to North Carolina. And I said, what for? And he goes, Oh, we're doing deep sea fishing. And I'm like, of course he's coming from DC. And there you go. of course that's what you go Fantastic. Yeah. So obviously I mentioned that you and I did a recent investment together how do you think about angel investing? Is it something you do a lot of or think a lot about or
1: I think about it a lot. I don't, I don't do enough of it. I think um, I'm more of an avid looker and a patient buyer. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the entrepreneurial sort of fad scared me a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean any kid in a gray hoodie could get a hundred grand really, really, really easily over the last few years. And, it didn't matter, you know, what your work ethic was like. So I've, I've kind of started looking more at the people versus the idea and the product. Um, I think execution and timing can beat kind of uh, the actual idea. So um, all of that to say, I, yeah. I
0: say that fully. I, I tell people all the time, I don't give a fuck about your idea. There's a lot of really good ideas, yeah. but you know what? There isn't a lot of good execution yeah. and good. And I and I ask people, are you willing to? beg, borrow, and steal every dollar, not steal, but beg and borrow every dollar from your family members in order to commercialize this technology. And if your answer isn't yes, then get the fuck out of here. You're not going to, you're not going to be successful. Yeah.
1: You can't win with that mindset if you're not willing. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously a metaphor, but it just kind of displays the lengths that you're willing to go to, to make it happen. You know, so.
0: Absolutely. What about networking do you do you do a lot of that that's something that personally early in my career I neglected and, and I wish I hadn't it was once we started NextGrid that I committed to okay now I'm gonna spend my time networking a mentor I spent all of my time with the sales team with the delivery team and with our clients and spent no time outside of the organization and mm-hmm. with next grid I said this is I'm going to build my network and a lot of that ended up leading directly to relationships that became level and other things that i'm doing now so i'm curious someone 27 years old how how much do you think about we obviously met through networking of sorts through a yeah. mutual friend but
1: um so that's the interesting thing i i don't really think about it as like okay i need to go network right mm-hmm. now it's more of just habit mm-hmm. or i think that's part of my personality i've
0: yeah you're a lot more you're much more extroverted than someone like like myself,
1: potentially. Yeah. So I have labeled myself as a, as an outgoing introvert. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's kind of based on how you recharge, and I completely recharge on my own. So I can you know have those weird maniacal creative moments, um, but also have a good time in a social setting. And I I'm thankful you know for being good friends with Jeff, who was good you know knew mm-hmm. you and well enough to to make the connection here. So yep. clearly there's inherent benefit to, to networking. So, but I think to me, it's, it's more of just my desire rather than, uh, a project or a, a you know, kind of a goal set of mine.
0: Interesting. Yeah. One of the things I've had to just comes to <clears throat> come, come to grips with in in the way that my networking has evolved is the fact that to really do networking well, I think you have to not focus on what do I get out of this? And is there an immediate tie into this? And that's very easy to say, but I think difficult to implement because you start taking meetings that have no <laughs> strategic no relevance, yeah. no value whatsoever, and 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 it's hard. There's a lot of demands on our times already. But then I also look. If I'm too careful on the other side, I would have never met you or right. some of the other. Friends. Yeah, you would have, so have never taken. Yeah, so
1: no reason whatsoever. No, I'm I'm thankful that. I'm uh, careless enough to take some of these meetings.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's it's like anything. There's there's just a balance that we hopefully figure out.
1: Some good hemp.
0: That is good hemp oil. Um, so I want to go back to something you said earlier, and I want to be be cautious with it um, because I don't want you to reveal too much here, but you, it sounds like you've met Gary V. What yeah. was that like?
1: Yeah, so... Um... Yeah, we're we're actually as an agency flying up tomorrow to to go spend some time at VaynerMedia, and we'll kind of circle back around to it at some point in the near future to talk about what it was like. But o- overall, we've we've had a a great experience knowing them the short short amount of time that we've had, and um, I think I'm so attracted to their culture, and, sure. and I think Gary's built that as a person, and I can completely validate that mm-hmm. that that is true 100 percent across the board that he's the same as you see on social as he is sure you know in real life and and uh i think that that can be said about anything that he does what you see on the surface is really w- what you get deep down so well,
2: that,
0: that's that's awesome i mean to change the number of lives that he's clearly changed and to do it in a genuine way is, he's
1: is... seemingly impacted a ton of people which mm-hmm. is is really cool and i'm excited for the ways that he's continuing to innovate impacting people literally um the different mediums the different ways the different concepts different people you know all all of that so yeah we'll um
0: we'll we'll circle back after you met him and and talk about that experience for sure so you've also are uh you cheer for the clemson teams
1: i i do (laughs) i bleed orange the clemson teams
0: so so I, I come uh, from an old school ACC family. My dad and brothers and my aunt all went to UVA. And
1: Oh, so you were the black sheep.
0: I was the black sheep. Did not go to UVA. Yeah, um, and where'd you go? I went to George Mason, which is a large public school and then, in Northern Virginia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there it is. small private school.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That small <laughs> private school. Yeah, we don't know them by their basketball team no. or football team. Or lacrosse or really. lacrosse team. Nope, nope, no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so... But but, but but going back to, you know, I was a fan when ACC might have been seven. This was pre-Florida State, and Clemson ruled the roost back then. And Clemson, in fact, had beaten UVA. I don't think UVA had ever beaten Clemson in their history, if I'm not mistaken. So they were the original powerhouse of the ACC. But then there was a good 10-, 15-year period where the ACC was all about Virginia Tech, Miami, Florida State. Um, ACC wasn't shit in the, in the national scene, let's be honest. No. And now you look, it's hard to argue that it, – it, it's not hard to argue that Clemson is the best program in the country. Sorry to the Alabama and the Auburn <laughs> fans, but at the very moment, two out of three, clearly built for long-term success. What – and again, I'm not somebody who watches the program closely, but as an ACC fan in general, I'm obviously impressed with what they're doing. What do you think changed in the program to – to turn it into such a great program now
1: yeah i mean i i think it's pretty obvious that it's the leadership mm-hmm. there i mean i think um Dabo obviously has has completely changed the game in terms of what it means to deliver leadership i think you look at the way that saban does it versus the way that Dabo does it and i think those are comparable in terms of the best two mm-hmm programs in the country right now auburn no shot uh just sorry sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um but but yeah I, i'm i'm so thankful that clemson was able to to figure out how to hire a guy like dabo and let him work his way up and and now he has command of the ship and and you can see the fruits of his his labor that he's been sowing for an over a decade now mm-hmm. um but yeah i he would refuse it, but I, I can single-handedly say that it, it's, it's Sweeney.
0: That's awesome. What lessons can we as business people take from a winning program like theirs?
1: Um, I think we can take a lot of cars out of their culture. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really interesting how they're a very people-first program. I mean, He said himself... Um, He wants to serve the players' hearts, and then that will in turn allow them to be better players versus forcing them to be better players and Mm -hmm. skipping the kind of who you are as a person part. Um, I think that for us as leaders can be easily turned into our just corporate culture in general. Um,
0: It's interesting. Not not the same thing, but one of my mentors who eventually I'm going to get on the podcast when I – Good enough at doing it. <laughs> he 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 likes to say um, quite a few uh, quite a few different things, but he talks about change management and he's written a book on change management and he's one of the experts and and um, and again I hope to have him on the podcast at some point here shortly. Um, but he says the number one thing that companies get wrong in change management is they focus on what it means to the company. And employees don't give a shit. They care about themselves. And so the first thing he does when planning a large change management, and, and this gentleman has done at Georgia Pacific, at mm-hmm. Medtronic, some very large huge, change management huge efforts. Huge, business. And the, he starts, everything starts with what does this mean for the individual? Because it's the individual who's going to make it happen. And if they're brought in on the vision, it's going to run more smoothly. And if they're not, then it's you're, you're, you're going to have, mm-hmm. have trouble. And it sounds like um we're you're seeing the same thing at clemson we focus first on on the players and and what they're doing and if we make them happy and they feel good and they feel empowered to make good decisions they're going going to do that
1: yeah i feel like that's the same thing that my parents did for me so i mean it yeah. kind of all ties back in it it's just it's neat to see uh yeah a players first program sort yeah. of
0: absolutely yeah it, it's really interesting i um I went to George Mason for undergrad and we've been struggling for 30 years to try to get a football team. And we, there was a member of the board of visitors or the board of regents. I can't remember the two who said, we don't want to be known for our sports program. And he said that. The year after the Final Four run, Mm. and and all of us who were observers said, "Like, wait a second, ridiculous! Like, we are known for one thing: our Final Four run. Outside of the Beltway, like nobody knows who we are except for our Final Four run. And Duke has embraced it. Duke is a absolutely an academic powerhouse by any measure, whether it's the business school, the law school, the medical school, the the undergraduate programs are amazing, Um, fantastic school. But they've embraced the they've embraced coach K and what he's built there. And Mm -hmm. I think it's great. I think that there are very few schools that are going to be good enough academically to be known and, you know, across the globe, no matter where you go, anybody that's paying attention. And yes, if you're Harvard or you're Oxford or you're Cambridge, there's a small handful of schools who may be able to do that on their own. But the the athletic side of it you you should take advantage of the advantage that you've got yeah
1: Yeah. i mean look at Stanford. Mm -hmm. i think they do a great job they've had a really competitive football team for a lot of years and they're also one of the academic powerhouses so
0: absolutely yeah i I think i think you can have both well all right brian let's let's wrap this up this has been a a great discussion and i hope folks are inspired to follow in your footsteps i know (laughs) i know i'm certainly inspired is there anything else you think we ought to say at this point or anything you'd like to leave the audience with?
1: No, I think um, I'm just really thankful for this experience. This is my first podcast. I don't awesome. know if you knew that. I did not know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, this is number one. and I'm um
0: might be a while before you have as much whiskey or wine or hemp oil <laughs> for <laughs> yeah, the next one. Especially the hemp oil.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but absolutely, no, I've really enjoyed it, and I, sh- I appreciate you having me on.
0: Yeah, well, th- thank you for sharing your story again. This is why I'm doing it is I think that – people need to hear more, more of these stories. So I really, really appreciate you joining me. Yeah. All right. Cheers.
2: Cheers.